listen, like I know I'm a big advocate for trust building and I know people say that, you know, it takes too long and it's not worth it. But I swear to you that moment, that animal comes to you and makes that decision. Your whole life will change. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you all so much for being there, or here, rather. Wow. Wow. What am I doing? So we want to thank our patrons from last week. So thank you guys all for supporting the podcast. And uh, obviously, Port City Pythons, if you want to check out T-shirts available or animals available. We are not shipping, but we are you know, holding animals for the winter at no charge. If you see anything that you like, it's kind of slim pickings at this time of the year, but... Uh, we still have some really cool animals available. What'd you have to say? I feel like you have something to say over there. No, no, no. It's just ship. Okay. Since I moved to I know, Florida, I was talking to Melissa. During the winter. Oh, I thought you were talking to me. That's okay. Don't worry. You're gonna you're gonna get your moment. Um, I was hoping it was now. Sorry, guys. The only thing I have to say is not snake related, but uh, who that. For all my oh. Saints fans out there, that was a scary but good win last night. Sorry for number one Philly sorry, super fan sorry, podcast Eagles. guest, Matt Minatola. It's a rough go. But, uh, you guys put up a good first quarter fight. <laughs> and you won the Super Bowl last year, so yeah, don't be so disappointed. You got it. Yeah, you won. It's our chance again. Again, yeah. Okay, but. great intro. Back <laughs> to snakes, <laughs> or back to reptiles. So other than that, I don't think we really have anything to oh, add. February 2nd. Sorry. Ooh, February 2nd, Oaks, Pennsylvania, the Oaks Reptile Show. We may have like 10 snakes available at that point, but we will also have some like springtails and stuff. I looked at the springtail culture today and it was like... Disgusting. No, there's like a million little hoppy springtail things. It was just like a cloud of white. Like it used to be like it looked like all charcoal. Now it's just like... I need to start a new culture. That's crazy. Yeah. And we'll have some bedding, some cocoa chips to show. Yeah, we'll have some supplies and springtails and a couple corn snakes. Yeah. That's pretty much it. But today, our guests, we have Brittany from Hope Education and also her husband, Caleb, will be joining us later when he comes back from work. So, Brittany, could you give us a, just a little overview of what Hope is and then kind of how you got into reptiles? Yeah, um, Hope is a wildlife conservation outreach group. We focus on wildlife conservation through education. Um, and Hope is actually an acronym. It stands for Herpetology, Ornithology, Paleontology, and Education. So we encompass reptiles, birds, paleontology, study of fossils, and we uh, take our outreach material, our animal ambassadors, and we bring them out to the public um, in a variety of ways. Usually we'll set up like a little display tent at fairs, festivals, uh, reptile expos, and pass out free care sheets, let people interact with the animals, and 
kind of get a feel for the reptiles. Uh, being in Florida, we have a lot of people that are afraid of snakes, especially because um, we have the whole venomous thing down here, which is completely different from where I'm from, which is Buffalo. Um, while we have venomous there, they're not really all over the place. So you don't get the same warnings that you do down here. So a lot of people are kind of conditioned to hate snakes. So we work on kind of uh, working with the general public and getting them over their fears or having them not even get over their fears, just, but just have a respect for the animal. Um, so we do that. And then we also do within HOPE, we have a species survival program where we work with critically endangered species. Like right now we have the uh, Cenosaura bacteri or the swamper iguanas that were just donated to us by Thai Park. We also have the Guatemalan spiny tail iguanas, which were donated to us from Thai Park as well about two years ago. Uh, and then we have the Chinese box turtles that we're working with too. So we're working with those three species and any offspring that we produce, we donate to uh, AZA facilities, other outreach programs. And then we also donate them to uh, a variety of conservation groups that are looking to actually hopefully be able to release some captives back into the wild to establish wild population. So we have a lot of projects that are going on with us. It's just kind of the starting up process. We started in Buffalo, New York back up in 2012. And I moved down to Florida. I live in the Pensacola area now. So I kind of live in lower Alabama. I don't really know if you can call my area Florida. We're, we're, more, <laughs> we're more hillbilly than anything. But uh, yeah, we, we kind of are starting up down here and getting our feet in the ground. But we're doing good. I mean, we got, we're booked pretty much every weekend throughout this year, which is nice. So. That's awesome. So, I mean, what did you do? Did you keep certain animals when you traveled or did you slim down a lot when you went um, from New York to Florida? Yeah, unfortunately, I had to slim down a lot. Uh, the move down here was, was rough. I uh, My car broke down in Atlanta, which was great. Oh, so, so I broke down right on the Atlanta freeway. So there's like seven lanes on one side and seven lanes on the other. And of course, I break down right as I'm in the far left lane and I have to go all the way over to the right. But dude, it was so nice down here compared, compared to New York. People were like, every five seconds, I got someone pulling over like, ma'am, do you need help? I'm like, oh, no, I'm okay. I'm just sitting here waiting for AAA. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I downsized. I gave, I had a red Argentine black and white tegu and a traditional black and white uh, tegu. He was a Chacoan. And I donate, not donated, but I gave them to a breeder. Um, and he's been working with them. And he hasn't bred them, but he enjoys them as pets. And then I had a Honduran spiny tail iguana or a Cenosaurus melasterana that I really regret getting rid of, but he's in a good place. He's bred a couple times and I don't know, they're taking good care of him. I miss him though, but it is what it is. So kind of just those guys, everyone else I brought down here, I brought the Guatemalan spiny tail iguanas with me. I had a blue chunk skink I brought with me. And then a couple king snakes, like I have the Florida speckled king snake. So I brought them all down here. And then when I moved down here, all the species that we weren't allowed to keep in New York, I was like, I'm gonna get those species. <laughs> <laughs> so within my first year, I got a yellow anaconda and a common snapping turtle. So those are my latest additions. Oh, I thought you were gonna go for different monitor species that <sighs> you can't have. Well, when I moved down, actually, how I met Caleb was through his black throat monitor. 
So we had a black ferret who unfortunately we had to euthanize probably about a couple weeks ago. Um, he had reoccurring abscesses and a couple medical problems going on. But he was nine years old, so we had diesel, the black ferret monitor, and then I have a mangrove monitor, a water monitor, and a savannah monitor. So I'm getting up there. It's just the space. So... <laughs> Yeah, so what made you, I mean, it seems like you're partial to things with four legs, but I mean, yeah. what makes you more interested in that than, say, other reptiles? I don't know. I just always had an interest in the lizards, specifically, like, the larger lizards. So your iguanas, your tegus, and your monitors, I guess maybe it's just because of the intelligence that they carry. I'm a really, really big, like, behavioralism person. I love the trust-building aspect, the... We clicker train our water monitor, and we we were clicker training the uh, black dart monitor, Diesel, before he passed away. And we were also doing the Savannah monitor we've been working with, too, on clicker training. And I guess it's just, I mean, with snakes, you you could do stuff like that, I would suppose, to a certain level of intelligence, because they, they definitely do carry it. And it would be interesting to see if snakes would react to it. But with the larger lizards and everything, it's just, they've always struck that interest with me. I don't know if it's because I've always been like the go big or go home type person. I don't really know if you can go. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can. You can. I mean, I've I've owned some big ones in my day, so... I definitely can understand. And that's one thing that we're working on right now. We actually just filled out the permit for the CSP permit, which is a conditional species. So in the state of Florida, in order to own your berms, your retics, um, Nile monitors, and they actually just added the yellow anaconda to it in order to own some of those larger constrictor species and anything that's an invasive for the most part, you have to get that conditional species permit for. So we actually just applied for that so we can get a retic. So and then you guys there. have like home inspections and stuff that you have to deal with in Florida, right? Yep. Yep. But the good thing about Florida is they actually give the permit out. So you're not stuck in that limbo state for years. Um, but, you know, you have that was the thing like in New York. I if you contact the state and try to get the permit that allows you to have berms, they don't even know. Like there's no way for you to even do it. They just don't even really get you anywhere. Well, and that's how that, that that's the difference between New York and Florida. And I tell people all the time because living in New York, it's like, oh, move to Florida, move to Florida. Everything is so good in Florida. There's so many reptiles. There's all this. The reptile community is huge. I don't know if I missed that memo and or my area missed that memo. But like where I live, reptiles aren't really that big of a thing. So the reptile community down here is so different compared to like central or southern Florida. And a lot of people like in New York, the first thing they asked me was always all my friends up there. They're just like, so when are you getting a berm? When are you getting a retic? I was like, dude, I got to go through a permit system. And they're like, what? It's Florida. I thought you could get whatever you wanted. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so it's, it's, I don't know. The nice thing about it is like, I keep saying like, they actually give the permits away down here, which is good. So it's expensive, but it's worth it. So. Can you wear the the other earphone? I think that's just, the one with the mic on it. I think it. she's just playing with it. I think you're playing. No, you don't. Yeah, yeah because that I one has the mic on it. it. And it was rubbing. <laughs> I think it was this one. Oh, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Figured you sound like a million times better now, but. Um, Sorry. <laughs> oh, you're good. So, I mean, going to Florida, I mean, is it a big adjustment as far as keeping goes? 
As far as keeping goes, it is. Like right now, all my reptiles, we converted our garage into a little mini facility until we get the funds to open up the kind of like the little sanctuary and center that we want to open up. Um, so it's different because at least in upstate in New York, you couldn't own anything and keep it in a garage that wouldn't work out. So, and they also, the other good thing too, is we have a couple of species like the spiny tail iguanas and the box turtles that we can actually have outside for portions of the spring and the summer. Granted, it's still like in my area, it still gets cold. I mean, it's 35 degrees outside right now, but we don't have any snow. Yeah, it gets cold in Florida. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know, but um, even in Miami, like I want to say, cause my one buddy moved from Syracuse down to Miami and he was telling me the other day, it was like 45, 50 degrees in Miami, which is granted cold for them. <laughs> right. So I'm like, to me, it's not that cold. I'm outside in a t-shirt and flip-flops, but <laughs> everyone else is cold. So it, it works for it's fun. <laughs> yeah. I would say as someone who likes larger lizards, I mean. I feel like you kind of have to be in Florida, especially when you get to a certain point and right. you can have some animals outside for a certain yep. part of the year. I mean, that's huge. Exactly. And I mean, like, I know there's a big, um, I mean, there's kind of a big battle between the outdoor keepers of Florida that are keeping the monitor lizards. And then the people that are either like Midwest or upstate, the conditions in Southern Florida don't a hundred percent match the natural range of where a lot of the animals come from. So you get a lot of people that'll argue with like Florida keepers about keeping their monitors outside all year long. But what a lot of people don't understand is the humidity in Florida alone is perfect for these animals to be kept outside. And once you get a solid basking area, I mean, you can reach and hit those temps on point um, for a lot of the different species so it, the outdoor keeping of the monitors and everything, like it, like you said, you have them inside for parts of the year and you have them outdoors for majority of the year, especially down south. So it's it's super nice. I know on our on our center and everything, what we want to do is we want to have outdoor access for our water monitor and for the mangrove monitor. Maybe not necessarily the salve because he is in a little bit more of a um, more of a heat index than some of the other species we keep, but. Yeah, no, for the water monitor and for the mangrove, it'll absolutely be amazing to have them outside for portions of the year. So, which because of the humidity in upstate, you probably couldn't even do that just because of the humidity alone. While the heat might match the uh, humidity index, probably wouldn't replicate any sort of natural setting for them. But... So when you have to keep like a certain amount of months inside a certain amount of months outside is there like an adjustment for the animal or like what do you have to do from each you know way of keeping right there there is especially like there are some species especially like the leopard tortoises they always say that leopard tortoises that if they're not born and raised in florida they will not survive outside here and there's something i honestly think it has a lot to do with the humidity adjustment like we notice when we bring our box turtles, I mean, we have the Chinese box turtle, we have the Gulf Coast box turtle that was given to us by FWC. Um, when we bring even those two species, which are more of a temperate species of box turtle, we bring them from outside to inside. We always notice that, you know, they'll slow down a lot. And from the 
the humidity index is the biggest key, I think. So because you go from, I mean, the humidity can be all the way up to like 90% here. It feels like you're inhaling water half the year. <laughs> so, and it, for the first solid seven months I lived here, I was like, is this feeling ever going to go away? Like you just always feel like something is pressed on your chest because of how how bad the humidity can be. And I feel like for the animals, that adjustment period from going outside to being in super high humidity to, I mean, our garage keeps about 55% it is right now. And during the day, it'll kind of go up all the way up to 70% in here, but it's no match for outside. So I think that's the biggest adjustment period because we can replicate the heat with heat pad with like heat pads and heat lights and radiant heat panels and stuff. So that's probably the biggest thing. Now, it seems like, and I don't know a lot about like the larger lizard keeping community, but it seems like there's a lot of like, there's a lot of debated topics. So like things like substrate or just your basic keeping, you know, heat, temperature, humidity. I mean, what is accepted or what are the different trains of thoughts? Okay, so you're gonna get me in trouble now. <laughs> the the uh, the large lizard community, as I I love it. Like there's, but there's certain. You just kind of gotta take what certain people say with a grain of salt, and at the same time, you also got to like with me. My biggest thing for care and husbandry is I look at the native range. I ignore, and as much as I love everybody, I'm sorry, guys, I ignore everybody in the reptile and the lizard community and what they say about husbandry. And I go to the native range. I look like the Savannah monitor. Okay. They're mainly from Ghana and the grasslands. And so what that, what does that tell me? That tells me that they like a lot of high brush to hide in. Um, I've seen some in pictures in field research. Um, they, they've climbed trees. So I offer some height to the enclosure so that I can put, you know, like driftwood pieces and everything for them to climb on and utilize. And they don't live that far from a water source. So that tells me you'll get a lot of keepers that'll be like, oh, with monitors, you don't have to have a water dish because, you know, they absorb all their moisture from the air, which is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have access to water. And that they so, out, you know, that they would just like turn down water. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and you'll get a lot of large lizard keepers. Specifically, this is more aimed towards the, the SAV community, which is always all up in arms. There's always a huge rift between people that are researching things one way or people that follow from another person or something else. Um, but I mean, the water source thing has always been kind of a big debate. So I always make sure I offer a water source when it comes to substrate, like, yes, these animals burrow, but do you need two feet of substrate? Is it mandatory? Is it necessary? I feel like personally in my SAV cage, I have about maybe about eight inches of substrate. I know certain people that would rip my throat out for the fact that I only have that much substrate, but my animal is thriving. His humidity is on point. His heat is on point. Um, I've never had any respiratory issues. I've never had, you know, the whole obesity and overweight issues. My monitors are super lean. They all have that nice lateral line that they're supposed to have. Um, and people kind of be like, well, you don't have two feet of substrate, so you're not taking care of your animal properly. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, he can still submerge under eight, eight inches of dirt. And I have like a little tunneling system that I made because 
I don't know if my salve is defective, but he doesn't like to burrow. So I made little, I have litigation tubing all throughout the cage so he can burrow into. And I always make sure that I miss the inside of those so that he has a high humidity burrow. So he has those access points. So my personal thing with large lizard keeping or reptile keeping in general, and a lot of people are opposed to it, but there's a million ways to accomplish one thing. Whether that is keeping your ball python in a tote on a paper towel, or that's keeping your ball python inside of a four by two PVC custom enclosure with bioactive dirt, as long as the animal's needs are, needs are being met, I don't see an issue with the way people are keeping things. So, and especially when it comes to large lizards, because there are so many different ways to accomplish the same goal you get so many people that are ripping each other's throats out over that. And I mean, in the lizard community, in the dwarf monitor species and in the SAV community alone, I mean, there's a breeder that's currently producing Savannah monitors. Two, I think he's had two clutches now. Both of them have hatched and he's breeding them in tubs. Like, it's insane. You asked me five years ago if you can keep a sav in a tub, and I would have ripped your throat out. Like, over the years, I've calmed down a lot. So it it goes, I don't know, you just kind of got to sometimes swallow your pride and accept the fact that there's different ways to do things. Yeah, so, I mean, from what it looks like from, like, an outsider's perspective, like, for Savannah seems to be particularly bad because they're such a cheap animal. There's such a like large animal realistically for who's getting it. Yeah. And um, I don't know, it just seems like an animal that completely, and they're so cheap that no one really wants to captive breed them. Right. And that's the big thing like with me um, when it comes to breeding monitors. I mean, we have Hoot. So Hoot is a, uh, she is a Varana Salvatore macro Biv, hat black dragon guru. What? So her genetics are like said a yeah okay right so like <laughs> yeah it's insane but like so those are all separate localities that she has all bred into her and then you get the het black dragon which creates those super nice solid black water monitors that everybody loves and wants including myself but when it comes to breeding them and when it comes to doing all that stuff like especially when you're breeding large lizards and even like large constrictors, like you have to take a step back and make sure that, Hey, okay, do I have the audience to be able to sell all these animals to, or give them away to, or however you plan to do it, because you're not just passing along a snake or a lizard that can live in a 20 gallon aquarium or a three foot custom cage. You're selling all these animals that have like huge enclosures and have super expensive dietary needs and everything like that. So um, I don't know. You have to have kind of a lot of morals when it comes to the large lizard community too. And there's with the, with the SAV community, a lot of it is, you know, you get those people that are like, Hey, I'm passionate about Savannah monitors or I'm passionate about mangrove monitors. And I know they're not being bred in captivity because of how cheap we can get them in wild caught, but those wild populations aren't going to last forever. So you get those people that are like, all right, hey, I'm going to breed them or I'm going to do this. And that's how, honestly, if I were to breed monitors, the Indicus complex is my favorite complex. So that's your mangrove monitors, your blue tails, your quince, um, and your peach throat, and um, your, cerem your ceremboses. But those you don't really find in captivity very often. 
So like I would like to breed those species because there's not that many people that are producing the captive uh, realm of them because they think that these wild populations are going to last forever. So, and I mean, they could, they could last another 15, 20, 30 years, but a good example of it is some of the, uh, the species, especially like things that are from Tanzania, the blackthroat monitor, you know, there weren't that many people that were breeding them in captivity and now you can't import from Tanzania. So unless people have been breeding them secretly, you won't find blackthroats that much that available that often anymore. So. so what has the change been? Because I didn't know that that happened. But um, so what has like the change been as far as people breeding them? I mean, there's obviously more people actively breeding them now. And like, is the price a lot different than what it was beforehand? The blackthroats? Yes. Yeah, the, the price has skyrocketed on them. You'll see a lot of the white throats that are available. And um, the thing with the, with the blackthroats, like I know they lost the thing like taxonomy with monitors is all over the place too. So they recently lost their taxonic standing. So the blackthroat monitor is technically no longer a species, even though they are, they're considered a subspecies of the whitethroat monitor now. Um, so like I said, taxonomy is crazy and it may have updated in the past three months when I heard that. So I might be wrong, but from, the, from, from uh, recent, I mean, within the past three, four months, that, that's been the, the deal with them. But the, the thing with them is they started, I think, maybe nine years ago, he got diesel, and diesel was $350 and in the state of Florida. Then it skyrocketed up maybe about four years ago to about $600. And now you'll see them anywhere from $950 to $1,200 apiece, wow. all because of that import. So. And what kind of like clutch sizes are we talking about usually? Not not big clutches. I mean, usually anywhere from six to, I mean, you'd be lucky to get 15 to 20 eggs. So they don't have super large clutches. Wow. But, yeah. So that's yeah. going to be hard to meet market demand on a, in a short period exactly. of time. Exactly. So, I mean, you do, you have some people that are working with them. Um, unfortunately, because of the days of Facebook, it's kind of pushed a lot of the breeders to be a little bit more seclusive and keep to themselves, which is totally respectable. You get a lot of people that are on the Facebook groups that think they know everything. And, you know, but the big thing is the husbandry debates. And a lot of times the breeders are just kind of, they don't want to deal with it because you get these people that just joined the reptile community, maybe like three or four years ago and think they know absolutely everything about that animal. Meanwhile, you have breeders that are breeding these animals for like 20 to 30 years. And they're like, yeah, all right. I don't want to hear it. Like, I understand how you keep your stuff, but this has worked for me. So, yeah. It's all the same shit. Just a little different. It, pretty much. I mean, the only thing with the large lizard, just like you get, like people always talk trash, like, all the Berman Rita community is awful. Like the macho guys that lift weights all day and they just want to show off their snakes with their shirts off. It's like, all right, with the large lizard community, you have like that same group of people because you have all the macho people that are like, yeah, I just wanted to own something that was big and blah, blah, blah. So look at my croc monitor. Yeah. It's the same complex, off. right? You get, you get the same complex with any species. I mean, look at the venomous community. That's its whole, oh, Oh no! I was like, "Do I say something?" We were just on Instagram <laughs> the other day, and this guy had his like cut-off sweatpants that he made into shorts and his shirt off, like tapping the cage of his cobra. I'm just like, 
what what is is that gonna save you to not have your shirt on oh this guy was also <laughs> j- 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 jacked out of his mind he was <laughs> giant he was like he's compensating for something maybe i shouldn't say and, that like what what's the need to have your shirt off i don't know <laughs> don't it's, you want it's a weird thing Dude, listen, if I take my shirt off and I, well, granted, I'm a female, so hold on, but, okay, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> if I'm a man, <laughs> I take my shirt off and I go handle one of my lizards, like, I don't want scars all over these places. Like, I'm okay. So, like, don't you want to oh, yeah. wear a shirt? Like, this, <laughs> it, it is what it is. I mean, the, the large lizard community kind of goes a lot based on how many scars, like, you're your representation of everything is, oh my goodness, you're home early. is <laughs> based on um, your how many scars do you have that makes you kind of like the best keeper ever. So it's <laughs> so weird, that whole macho complex. Here we go. Now we just have to figure out how to adjust this. You get to be, you put it in that ear so it's closer. So have before... you ever done this in high school? No. <laughs> you guys get to share your phones just like we are today. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely a first. So I want to introduce Caleb, but then I kind of want to backtrack because we didn't talk about the start of hope. So Caleb, just give us like a quick introduction of who you are and what you work with. And then Brittany, just give us a rundown of how you started hope and kind of where you got the idea. Uh, I'm Caleb. I'm, I'm Brittany's husband and I kind of, I kind of specialize in like the same stuff she does. I do, I work with mainly large lizards, like monitors and tegus, but I also do a lot of work with boas. So that's kind of, that's kind of my forte. And I'm just, I'm, I'm Brittany's better half, basically. (laughs) He's the good side of me. (laughs) Well, that's all right. I know how that is. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so Hope Education, I mean, how did you get it started and kind of where did you get the idea for it? Um, Hope has had a very long road, but I mean, <clears throat> the idea probably started when I was super young. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, just kind of like how a lot of us in the community started, I started kind of saving garter snakes and saving toads and, you know, you you think you're doing better and everything. So you put them in a little 10 gallon aquarium, you take care of them for a while and then you set them back free. I started doing that at a super young age. And then probably when I was, I think when I was 11, I got my first snake, which was an albino motley corn snake. And she was the best snake ever. And that kind of got me my foot in the door with wanting to involve myself more. So I started volunteering in a bunch of places. Um, I volunteered for a reptile rescue. uh, And then I volunteered for, like, as a kid, you can be in the zoo crew. Like, at the Buffalo Zoo, they had kind of, like, a little kid's day camp program thing. So I involved myself there. uh, And then when I did the reptile rescue, it kind of, it tumbled down. Like, I'm not going to lie. It wasn't hope, but it was kind of, like, my road to the beginning of everything. And when I did the reptile rescue, we got a leopard gecko in that had crypto. And when the leopard gecko had crypto, it probably took out about nine animals that we had in quarantine at the time. 
and it was rough and it just kind of made me take a step back and realize like, all right, maybe, maybe I'm not ready to do rescue. Maybe I'm not ready to do all this. I mean, I was about 16, 17 at the time. So I, I really wanted, and I told the, uh, the founder of the organization, I was like, Hey, listen, I'm gonna take a step back. Like this crypto thing really made me learn a lot. And it makes you second guess a lot of uh, keeping practices you have to make sure that you have those steady quarantine practices for rescue, which at that time, after dealing with that incident, I kind of realized like, all right, maybe I don't have the ideal space for it. So I took a step back and kind of went a different route. Uh, I was known as the Wolverine of the Western New York reptile community. I kind of got a really bad reputation because I was that person that we were talking trash about, like that they come into the reptile groups and they're like, you should do it this way and you should do it that way. And you're not doing it right if you're not doing this and blah, blah, blah. Like that was me, like hardcore. And I mean, even him, like we started talking, it was six years ago now we started talking in Facebook land because I fangirled over his black throat monitor. And he even, you can even ask him, everybody hated me in the reptile world. They're like, oh, you know, I was, I was Brittany Raptosaurus Rex back then. <laughs> and people were like, I was that like hardcore reptile girl. And people were just like, oh, you know, Brittany Raptor Rex, like you want to stay away from her and make sure you don't do this and you don't do that. But nobody second guessed what I what I knew. They all knew that I knew what I was talking about, but it was the way that I presented it. And that was the big problem. So I kind of took another step back uh, and um, reevaluated like everything that I was doing and how I was talking to people and how I was coming across to the general public. And uh, we had originally the outreach group was called Hurts of a Feather because we still included the reptiles and the birds. And after the whole like bad reputation went down with how I was approaching people, I decided like, all right, why don't we rebrand and start over? I will publicly apologize to everybody that I ever had issues with and anybody that thought that I was kind of like the little raptor of the reptile community and just kind of attacking everybody's husbandry. Like I'll approach them and be like, listen, you know, um, I was just trying to do what I thought was good for the welfare of your animal. But now I realize like, you know, taking a step back, like it's your animal, you're going to do what you want to do. Obviously your animal is surviving, you're breeding, you're doing this. So I gained a lot of respect in that manner. And uh, then we decided in 2012 to rebrand as Hope Education Network, where the network was the biggest component of the outreach program, because what we wanted to do was we wanted to work side by side with fellow keepers, breeders, field scientists, uh, researchers, your wildlife rehabbers, all of them. We wanted to make sure that all the information we were spreading to the public was all accurate, up to date, and it was all you know viable information that the public <clears throat> could use because we ran into a lot of problems where you know people will pull up uh, care sheets on any reptile and it's extremely old and outdated. So that was the big key component to the network was we always wanted to make sure that we had um, kind of like those connections to be able to talk with people and work with people and everything. Um, so we did that. We established our connections. And then in 2015, in the state of New York, we became a fully functioning outreach program that was going to schools and we were going to like we did the renaissance festival and we did some of the 4-h stuff we worked with the boy scouts and girl scouts like we we were doing all the programs and everything like that 
And, um, you know, we, when we rebranded, when we restarted and when we kind of made, I made that apology to everybody, it, it kind of got, got us going in, in the better direction that we originally started. So that was one of the big things, like as an educator learning to kind of take a step back and like, all right, there's a million ways to do one thing. And I started volunteering for this wildlife hospital in Holland, New York called messenger woods, wildlife hospital. And that hospital probably taught me more than anything I know, um, between the whole public demeanor, um, uh, public speaking, I mean, wildlife rehab in general, essentially you're, you're, you're the first responder vet. You get these animals in and you're their critical care nurse. You have to figure out what the problem is. You have to figure out what medications they need. And then when it comes down to it, you know, you're working with the veterinarians and doing the x-rays. And we focused a lot, me and my mentor, we focused a lot on like common snapping turtles and wood turtles. And we had like toads and a couple garter snakes that would come in. So we focus a lot on the reptile side of it. And I mean, I learned how to epoxy a, tur a turtle shell so that you could have a turtle that was completely, its shell was demolished. I mean, it would be missing chunks of shell. And, you know, being able to have someone teach me how to reupholster essentially a turtle shell, um, you know, it taught me a lot. And we brought that down into Hope Education that we have here in Florida now and so we have like with FWC, we had six baby snapping turtles that came in and we were able to kind of quarantine them, monitor them for a couple of weeks and then release them back into the wild. So that's a component that we wanted to make sure that we always had integrated into hope was the rehab aspect of it. Because while I started at a super young age, um, like I said, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, like I went down the wrong path at first. And then thankfully, like I had those realizations that turned me around and pointed me in a better direction. So, and I really think I have a lot of the wildlife concert, wildlife rehabilitation and the conservation efforts that messenger would specifically put out to thank me or to like, you know, to thank for everything that they've done for me and turn me around as a person in general. So it honestly, and truly like being an educator and doing all that stuff. And if you want to get into it, or if anybody is just kind of like, I'm going to do this and this is what I want to teach about. I mean, I tell everybody do it, but don't be harsh on people. You know, you can't, you can't hate people for not doing what you think they should do, or you can't, you know, look down upon people because they keep things a certain way because a lot of times that's the reason why you're there. You know, if you're belittling people and if you're kind of acting like, you know, everything as an educator, no one's going to listen to you because people don't, I mean, yeah, you have the people that don't want to hear it because a lot of times, unfortunately, people want to be babied and coddled and they want to learn how to do stuff the right way, but they don't want to be yelled at about it. And that was in the beginning, like I said, probably in like 2011, we've been around for a while now, but in the beginning, that was a lot of the bigger problems that I personally had. So, um, yeah, it was just, we started that way. And then last year I moved down here. Um, I was president of the Western New York Herpetological Society for two years. And I've kind of put hope on the back burner for that. And when I moved down here, I became immediate, what was it within like two months, I became president of the Northwest Florida Herpetological Society. Wow. <laughs> so, so like I went from like one to the other right away. So we kind of put hope on the back burner for about eight months. And then finally in October 
of this past year, you know, I told the club, I was like, listen, like, Hey, we got you back up off your feet. And I really just want to focus on hope. So we still have good ties with the Northwest Florida Herb Society, but I stepped down as president and then started focusing more on hope. And I mean, within, what is it? October, November, December, within four months, we already, we're already at nonprofit status and we are, I mean, we're booked all throughout 2019. So it's, it's definitely been a project and I can definitely say I hit a few bumps along the way, but I'm still here and I'm not giving up. And that's what passion is. So. <laughs> and how did Caleb kind of get in integrated into all of this and kind of how'd you guys meld together your collections? Yeah, Cause I'm sure you details also, the, you didn't have a choice. Well, the the thing is, and everyone thinks that thinks it's a joke, even though it's one hundred percent the truth. Is I tell everyone that she only married me because of my black throat monitor, <laughs> and everyone thinks it's a joke. But I'm just like, look at her. She goes, "It's true." So, so and we're followed by that. It's true, and no and no one ever believes us. Everyone thinks it's a joke, but that's that's really how it went down. And uh, well. <clears throat> I was always into reptiles as well growing up. I caught, you know, living in Florida, I caught all the snakes and lizards and frogs and toads and stuff like that. You know, we we I, I grew up learning about alligators and everything like everything you expect someone who lived here does. So it was always a natural thing for me. I started keeping reptiles when I was nine. And then it, it's just a, a passion that continued to grow and grow and grow. And then when I was 17, I discovered I was allergic to dogs and cats. I'm like, oh, it's a good thing I like reptiles. <laughs> so no, no allergies there. So that's helpful. And then I got involved with an outreach group that would do stuff like that. And that's how really I got into, I guess you could say, the public as- aspect of it. And I just continued to do that with there. And when she finally moved down here, she brought hope with her. And it's just like, what? Even before, okay, sorry. Even before I moved down here, we had at the point, at, at one point we had hope had different like chapters. Like right now to this day, we have a Vermont chapter and we still have the Buffalo chapter. And then we have our area. Well, for two years, I was telling him, I was like, dude, you can start your own chapter of hope. Like all I do, like I got the paperwork, I got all this, like you can do your own outreach programs, you can do everything. So for two years, he technically had his own little hope thing going on that he didn't do anything with. Okay. <laughs> I guess he never saw any of that paperwork to be able to do anything. But but um we we kind of like, you know, we worked together for about two three years before i even moved down here and i mean our logo is his black throat monitor so i literally contacted him one day and i was like hey i really like your black throat can i use it as a logo and he's like okay creepy girl no problem and i'm like yes (laughs) so that's kind of how the relationship started and how at least his involvement with hope kind of became to me but when we moved down here when you moved down when i moved i already lived here yeah unfortunately yeah what 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 nothing uh, the, when we got married it was like okay you're kind of you're kind of stuck like this whether you want to or not so you know it's, it's time to start helping me out and do things like oh okay and it's it you didn't have a choice i really did it's it's fun we it's it's always good to be able to do something you're passionate about 
but it's it becomes even great when you get to do it with someone you love and her and i make a great team on things so it's it's always it's always a fun time and a unique time at that it's like <clears throat> i get bossed around at home and i get bossed around when we go do outreach stuff like this i have a honeydew list regardless of whether i'm at home or out doing things with her so it is well i have like all right i have wicked ocd and my volunteers all the time will be like do you want us to come help you set up i'm like nope I'll set up all on my own. Like, I, you're, we're good. <laughs> so, Meanwhile, so, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so, like, with him, <clears throat> whenever we're setting up for events, it's kind of like, hey, can you grab that and put that there? And then 10 seconds later, wait, hold on, can you grab it and put it over there instead? So it's... <laughs> I, get, I get a good workout whenever yeah. we do educational outreach yeah, events. Do. And we kind of balance each other out because when you're working with the general public, as much as we, like... Don't get me wrong. We love doing the outreach program. It's definitely something we're passionate about and something we'll probably be doing forever until the day we die. But um, dealing with general public can be quite a headache at times. And Which one of you is more patient? <laughs> I'm, I'm the one that every couple, every, every about maybe like 20, 30 minutes, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go take a step and go walk around for like, a minute and chill out and relax and I just I guess I get overwhelmed by kids see in Buffalo the program we were a lot more like high school college level and since moving down here it kind of the education um, need is more for younger kids versus the older kids so we switch to being more about like the younger your preschool kindergarten your elementary school and I've always had the not necessarily the vocabulary but more like the speaking presence for older kids. So every so often, like a kid will ask me about, oh, why is, why is my bearded dragon sleeping so much? And I'll be like, well, kid, the process of brumation is blah, blah, blah. And just like go off and they just look at me. And then he steps in, he's like, you know how bears sleep for a long time? So like we, we have that good balance with each other because I usually take it to a whole crazy scientific route, no matter what age the kid is, I don't have that filter and he'll balance it out and like kitty it down for them. So it works. We make a good team because of it. Because grow, growing up, I had two nephews and six nieces and two sisters and I was raised by my mom. So I, I learned all sorts of things. You were prepared. I was prepared. So and then, you, oh, sorry, go. And then later on, I, I'm now in a great uncle, so it's like the steady process of prepared of preparedness never slows down any. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, like, for, I'm awkward, Rockets. <laughs> You're probably the no, same way. <laughs> no kids. no i am and you're much better oh i thought you were telling me i'm awkward around kids i'm a preschool teacher so like oh <laughs> see you have it you want to know the weird thing i was a after school preschool preschool teacher how did that go <laughs> it was okay i was that teacher that parents were kind of like are you sure that she's qualified yeah, because what what happened was um, during the Halloween season, I worked at a haunted house and like top 10 haunted house in the country is the one that I that one of the ones that I worked for. So it got to a point where I wouldn't be there on time because of the last kid getting picked up. So I would start doing my makeup 
as the kids are doing it. So parents would be coming to pick their kids up. And here's like the teacher half covered in blood and like super gory, like no, no filter, like not rated G or PG. It was straight up like rated R gore all over my face. And then we did, um, <laughs> we did a kid project where we made candy blood and all the kids were bringing home little bags of like red chocolate blood and going to their parents like, Oh, look what Miss Brittany made for us. And I'm just sitting there like <laughs> I'm that weird teacher. <laughs> like, but I mean the you kids that I house filled with reptiles of all sorts. Yeah, exactly. So I mean it was definitely fun. And I mean now I'm a parent, so I have to understand kids a little bit more, but it didn't help that much. <laughs> like, so do all the people that work with you, are they just volunteers or do you actually have like employees that go do these events with you? Someday I would absolutely love for be, to be able to pay the volunteers because they definitely put a lot, they put a lot of effort and work into helping us with all the events that we have. Um, but no, unfortunately right now, everybody's a volunteer. I mean, we don't even get paid. So we, we just got literally January 1st, our nonprofit paperwork became legal. So, um, we have a couple grants that we'll be applying for to hopefully be able to open up the, uh, the education facility that we want. We actually, we were living in an area called Pace and Pace is kind of more of a, like a city-ish area. It's more suburban-ish. Yeah, so um, we didn't really have that much acreage on our property. We had a super small backyard, and we kind of got to the point where we were making a decision, like, okay, do we want to stay here and then open up a, like, a rehab center and an education center and rent a place and have two separate mortgages, or... Do we want to just say, you know, screw it, let's go buy a new house with acreage so then that way we can pay one mortgage and open up a facility on the property. So in September of last year, we actually just bought a four acre property so that we could open up a rehab center or not, a, well, a rehab center with an education center on our property ourselves. So, you know, we're, it's a process, we're getting there. So eventually we'd like to be able to pay people, but that's just unfortunately not in the works at the moment. So what's the, I mean, like ideal situation. So you want to have some type of like, it would be kind of an education center, a place where school could go on field trips and you show them animals or what? Right. So essentially what we want to do as much as we love bringing our animals out to public events, it does pose a lot of stress on the animals. Um, and one of the big rules that we have, especially with hope is, you know, you'll get outreach programs that they completely and, and I'm not trash talking anybody specifically, this is just generally speaking, but you'll get outreach programs that, you know, they work the animal to the bone where, you know, you see the stress signals and you see that maybe the animal is not in optimal health and stuff like that. And one of the biggest things with us is point blank, if the animal doesn't want to go, we're not going to take them. If during the event, the animal starts getting stressed out, we'll tote them up. And then, I mean, we have Doodles, who is our Moluccan cockatoo, uh, she's one of the big one of the big bird ambassadors we have. She gets timeouts throughout the day. So, you know, we'll put her inside of her carrier for a period of time. They all get breaks. And um, one of the big things with our program is always making sure that we have kind of those measures, you know, as much as I love entertaining the public and doing the conservation and education, my animal's health and well-being isn't worth somebody's entertainment. So what we would eventually like to do is have an entire kind of facility open to the public, you know, maybe not every single day, but like 
on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, have it open to the public and then, you know, be able to do these private tours and private programs and have people come look at the animals, kind of like a little mini zoo. But within that zoo, have a conservation center and have an area where kids can learn or even adults and teenagers can learn about the animals around them. Like what you can do as a human to protect the animals that are around you, whether they're native or worldwide. And then also because of my roots in the wildlife rehab, I would like to have a rehabilitation center, um, not anything like huge or anything like that, but just something small that, you know, so if FWC approaches us with more, either box turtles or snapping turtles um, that we can accommodate those animals and be able to either winter them or help heal them and then be able to release them back into the wild. So, and I know eventual goals we have within at least the bird side of the program is falconry and even just having, um, being able to rehabilitate raptors and songbirds and everything like that. So we have a couple different paths and things that we want to do. I know at one point we talked about opening a specialized kind of like a veranitarium where we have every single species of monitor lizard and have that as kind of an attraction along with everything else. So... We have a lot of goals in mind. It's just all in that unfolding process. But right now we're hoping by 2025 to have a building open to the public. So, so how many awesome. species of monitor lizard is there? Are there? Oh God. Yeah, that, that's a real trivia question off the top of your head. <laughs> you said you wanted to if you asked me how many python species there are, I'd be like, well, you she crazy said she dude. Wants to have everyone. So I thought all right. Within, within the Indicus complex alone, you have six. Then you have your Sav, your Albig, your White Throat, your Lace, your Croc, your Parenti, your Komodo. So huh? when are you getting a Komodo? Right. <laughs> when we get the AZA paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, oh, wait. Komodo, I got excited. Hold on. Then in the dwarf species, I think there's 36 species of dwarf. And then oh. in, in, okay, in the water monitor complex alone, there's what, 50? Not that many. There's a lot. There's a lot. Okay, never mind. Check my question. There's a lot. Like that. There, there's just a lot. So wait, at some point you wanted to have one of every single one of those? Well, within a lot of the complex, you get localities and subspecies. So if you you could have quite the diversity and have the different localities and subspecies, but if you have one Varanus salvator or one Varanus exactamaticus, you technically have a sav and a water monitor. It's just if you want to diversify. Right. Like what? Within the water monitor complex, there's the Mertens. That 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 would be Mertens. That's Australian. Right. But Not they're still Salvatore. in the water monitor complex. Not Salvatore, but in the water monitor complex. Technically. Because they're the Australian water monitor. Right. <laughs> what is Kamingai classified under? Uh, Kamingai is not Salvatore, but it is technically an aquatic monitor. Right. See, Adam, you could go on for days. Like, and the thing is, like, the ta the taxonomy on monitors, like, so the water monitor complex, the water monitor complex stresses me out. I love them to death, but it just changes all the time. And then you'll get like species that were once included, and now all of a sudden they're their own species, like the Kamingai, for example. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> like with the blackthirts, the blackthirts used to be Varanus albigularis, Ionitesae. And they got changed to Varanus albigularis microtistic, which is the same as the white throat. 
So you have a black throat whose scientific name literally translates to small white spots. And black throats generally have big yellow spots. So it's always an interesting time. So obviously in snakes, something like that, even when something is still considered a species, it's, I mean, very frowned upon to breed them together. So, I mean, is that, is that also a thing in monitors as far as subspecies are kept separate or are there lumpers and people who care, people who don't, so on. There, so. It's, it's the same thing in the large lizard community that it is with the snake community. The people who are hybriding snakes, you'll have people that love them. You'll have people that are like, oh, you don't know what you're doing and all those keyboard warriors and everything like that. And then you get the people that are just genuinely curious, like, hey, what's this and this going to make? Same thing in the monitor world. When you're the thing like with some of the dwarf species and especially the water monitor thing, because you have all the different subspecies, but they're technically under the same umbrella. um, You'll get a lot of people that are hybriding and don't even know it. Um, And I know with tegus, I mean, the hybrid thing is crazy nowadays. I mean, they've gotten to the point now where hybrids are considered certain morphs and. Oh yeah. Blue ice. Right. When it used to be in for the Argentine takers, you just have black and white, red and blue. And now you have purple tiger and blue ice and. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch. Paradox, et cetera, et cetera. Right, it's, but in reality, those are all those are all just hybrids, you know. So you have all, it's it's a great marketing strategy. I gotta say, like people are on point with that. But it's no, it is. I mean, me yeah, personally, they're acting like they made something new, but really they just took two existing things and hybridized them. I yeah, mean, they did. So and you, and you really dirty up your gene pool that way the more you do it right and that that's the biggest problem just like i'm sure it is with the snake community you get the people that are like oh i have a like you said i have a blue ice tegu or i have the the purple tiger tegu and then they're they're selling them as such and they don't tell people like all right but this is a hybrid of this and this so my personal opinion with the tegus at least is you know if you're going to hybrid them if you're going to showcase them as morphs just make sure you're selling them as such, you know, advertise and make them thousands of dollars. Fine. I don't care. Whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you happy in the reptile community, but you should at least be marketing them and making them like, you know, this is what you're getting. So that way, if people plan to breed in the future, you're not just muddying up and muddying up the gene pool um, because you get to a point like with um, the ball python world. I mean, finding a normal ball python, just your regular Joe small ball python is pretty hard non-morph there is i mean it's the rarest (laughs) exactly so and that that's honestly like my biggest fear when it comes to the tegu world especially is you know is it going to get to a point where finding just a regular black and white tegu or a chacoan i mean how hard is it going to be to get those those kind versus just straight up hybrids all the time now when it comes to monitors the biggest debate of 2018 was the hybrid between what was it, the black dragon and a croc monitor? Yeah, and then they did no, two. No, it was. And then it, it was, was like a lace and something else. No, it was a hybridization of a regular water monitor to a croc monitor, and then a lace to a black dragon. Right. 
that stirred the community up real nice. I mean, uh, a black lizard is going to be a black lizard. Why would you hybridize it? Once it's black, you're not going to realize it's a hybrid, or can you? Or is it infertile? They the eggs never hatched out. Uh, I mean, they hatched and there was just a headshot, but that was it. Yeah. So that was what clutch was that? Because there were two clutches. That was. But in order to have a black dragon, I mean, you have to. I mean, that's a pretty expensive animal, right? Yeah. So it had a yes. Really serious person. It it was from a very very serious person, a very very high up in the large lizard community too, which was shocking to a lot of us. But that was the that was the big debate of the century. I mean, it it was it was bad, and a lot of it kind of boiled down to like why, why you know? Are the only two animals you have, or like what's going so- on? No, and it it just kind of like that was the biggest debate. And then not only the why factor, but apparently like 10 years ago, another big monitor breeder tried the same thing and it didn't work. So this person was kind of advertising like, you know, this is the first time and nobody's ever done this before. And meanwhile, all of us are kind of like, wait a second, hold on. 10 years ago, someone tried doing the same thing. It didn't work. So I don't know if it was kind of like. No one else wants to do it. Like, (laughs) no one else wants to do Right. And I mean, you take you take two animals like the the lace monitor to the water monitor was just to me ridiculous. You have a semi-aquatic monitor with a semi-aboreal monitor. And then they're from two separate areas that husbandry needs are completely different. So if you hatch out this baby, how do you take care of it? Like, do you suit the need of the lace monitor or do you suit the need of the water monitor? And that's what a lot of people were kind of like, okay, but why? <laughs> so a whole other dimension of things to fight about once you get into hybridizing everything. Right. So, and I mean, the snake world has been doing it for a lot longer than the large lizard world has. So and you guys are kind of... Harder to breed a you know a large monitor to be honest than a lot of right. species. So well, yeah, it is because you risk. I mean, with the large lizards, I mean, if a female is not receptive, they'll kill the male, and vice versa. So, and I know with snakes you can run into those issues too, but with large lizards, you got a little bit more body behind it. So, yeah, I, I guess let's talk about. I guess what everyone probably is always interested, especially with the larger monitors. I mean your self-preservation and safety like how do you guys <laughs> um how do you guys make sure that you're safe all the time and what are kind of the things that you guys do well i think it boils down to uh, with us we, we both have quite a vast area of large lizard experience is really what we do like if we had to pick one group of reptiles to keep forever it would be large lizards especially monsters and pegus and What makes lizards, especially large lizards, different from your snakes is, you know, while you can't work with snakes to get them more tractable, it's it's still a snake. You know, if it's gonna if it's gonna be chill, it's gonna be chill. If it's not, you you know pretty quickly. With large lizards, they can be completely calm the next and then next minute just latch onto your arm and then five seconds later go back to like just wanting to hang out, (laughs) all within a span of thirty seconds. So it's it's really something 
it's really it's really an animal you get to know on a personal level you you for lack of a better term you bond with these animals you you get to know their body language their routines what they like and what they don't like and in the process they get to learn you like we have a water monitor who we call hoot because she has an owl face on her tail so therefore my wife named her after that but in reality she really is a hoot it's never a dull moment no she can be completely okay with us and just climbing exploring with us and then she will she will whip us right in the face with her tail just because she can <laughs> i mean we and always hear i mean how smart these animals are i mean what's they the are that they are incredibly smart. Our black throat has figured out how to open the door just from watching us do it. And there is one time to where I was giving him a fresh bag of leaves. And what I do is I just go out and collect like oak leaves and magnolia leaves and stuff like that. And I just put in the trash bag and just dump them in. I dumped them in like I've done dozens of times. He waited till I got completely empty with the bag and then whipped me right in the head with his tail. <laughs> And then just looked at me. And I tell everyone it was only a half speed because he likes me. <laughs> but oh. they, they have done problem-solving intelligence with monitors. And it's really amazing because you can look at them. And it's one of the few animals you can look at dead in the eye. And not only are they looking back at you, you can tell the wheels are turning up in there. Right. And, like, when it, when it comes to safety handling and everything with them, when you're starting out and you're still learning the body language and like what the telltale signs are like with the monitors, the, the, the nice thing about them is they don't, they don't just strike. They don't just come after you. They give you the warnings. They, they posture up, they puff their throat out, they tail whip, they hiss, they close their eyes. Like there's so many warnings that these animals give you. And up until you learn their body language, like, no one, I mean, on Facebook, sure, but no one in the large lizard community is going to make fun of you for wearing gloves. You know, you can use that safety measure. Don't let people tear you down, like, just because you're wearing a pair of gloves. You know, I could show you all the scars I have on my arms from the times where I was stupid and didn't wear gloves. I could show you the scar of a huge bite mark I have from a Nile monitor on the inside of my thigh from where I didn't use safety measures. And you got a tail whip scar now. And I have a tail whip scar from a black throat monitor through my tattoo. Like, it's... Wow. Yeah, that that was a fun day. There's... um, She left me. Yeah, I did. There, there's um, there's a lot of different measures you can take when it comes to using safety. And the big thing is, is learning that body language. So like with us, um, with a lot of our lizards, we do the whole trust building thing. We don't force handle any of our animals, kind of like I talked about earlier. And that process goes out for especially the large lizards, because the last thing I want is to have a big monitor in my hand that is super defensive, super territorial, and just scared. So, you know, you work with them and through working with them on their terms you learn their body language a lot deeper than just the grabbing them out of the cage and force handling aspect of it so but yeah i mean the the unfortunate thing is in the large lizard community if you're if you take a picture like you take a selfie with you holding your lizard and you're wearing gloves people will talk trash about it all day like oh man you don't need gloves or it's just nails and it's just this but There are some people that don't want to get caught up. There are some people that don't want to risk it. So don't let that. It hurts. Yeah. Don't let it deter you away. 
take those safety measures and to, wear to, those welding gloves. To the point we have both been asked if we are okay when we're right. out in public and people see all our scars. Uh, yeah, it's real awkward because it's always on your forearm, I guess, from the back legs. Yep. But yep. To, to go along with what she said, when you when you do trust building and you work on their terms, the relationship you get with the animal is a whole lot better. And it is just that it's a relationship. You you learn the animal and the animal learns you, and it, and it is kind of like a bond. Not no nowhere near like the bond between you and your dog by any means, but it it is quite the reward to put all the time and effort and and patience and patience. That's the one thing I have with patience with is trust building into this, and you get you and you get the fruits of your labor eventually. And it's just such a rewarding experience. You feel like your monitors know the difference between y'all and a stranger. Oh, absolutely. It's hilarious because Hoot, so Hoot was given to us by um, Vital Exotics. And we thank Vital Exotics for Hoot immensely. She's such a great animal. But I, um, behavioralism and stuff like that, that's kind of more my forte. That's what I tend to focus on a lot more. It's what's always interested me. Um, the husbandry and behavioralism. So I did a lot of the trust building with Hoot. And it got to a point for a while that Hoot didn't want anything to do with him. But it was his lizard. Like, Vital gave it specifically. I mean, Vital knew I was moving down, but Vital gave it to him. And it was kind of funny because I was like, oh, like, so, I mean, now Hoot has kind of come around a little bit more because he's been working with her without me. Um, and that's helped a lot, but it absolutely got to a point where who didn't want anything to do with him and was like, oh, she's cool. I'm okay with her. So, it, yeah, they, they definitely recognize like, the difference would, between people. Like, she would straight up just, like, brown nose me and go. Yeah, she didn't want anything to do with him. It, it was impressive. Meanwhile, our black turd, he always liked me more than her. Yeah, the, and which was funny because Diesel was, of course, the one that I fangirled over. And part of the reason why I moved down here. Really? So, <laughs> so and, and he hated me. I would open up the cage and he would just put his head down, close his eyes and just huff real big and like, oh, here comes this bitch again. Like he hated me. So it was, and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, you're my logo. I've loved you for years. Just love me. Meanwhile, he's like, I don't care. But so, and he was fine with him. <laughs> and I mean, you have stories from when he was younger, he would tail whip other people and he was okay with certain people. So yeah, they, they definitely realize who their owners are. And a great story I heard one time is there was someone who had a female water monitor like we do, and he this this gentleman had her, you know, since she was like that big. Well, like me, he had a beard, and then one day for I he decided to completely shave it off, and he goes in there. She was adult this size, and goes in there to interact with her, and she just runs away from it and bows up and everything, and it was like she no longer recognized him because he no longer had facial hair. But she was so curious about, okay, this person, this person sounds the same. This person still has the same smell, but this person doesn't look the same. And that really tells you the, the degree of attention they put in to learning people. Right. I mean, there were documentaries, especially on the SABs too, where the Savannah monitors are so smart, they recognize colors. So... I mean, they did a simple trial thing where 
they had like a little raceway with um, <laughs> these two, I don't know, like squeezy balls targets at the end. One was blue, one was red. And the blue one would release some sort of freeze dried meat. And it got to a point where they would even move the targets around and it would go after the same colored one every single time. And that's kind of where I got the idea with, okay, well, we can target train them. And then it was like, well, let's take it a step further and try clicker training and see if that works. So, and I mean, Hoot is, she's starting to get it. We've been doing it for what, about six months now, the clicker training. And of course, when we moved, we reverted back a lot. And um, I mean, when we moved, we kind of had to rework with her and we just started the clicker training over again now. But I mean, she's at the point where she follows the target and goes to the target and she's understanding the click means food. So it it works out really good. I mean, my Savannah monitors and my Argus monitor up north, they were all clicker or not clicker. They were all target trained. And um, it was super beneficial to the Argus because their feeding response is insane. So, I mean, I probably one of the highest food drives I've ever encountered in a monitor lizard was with the Argus. And I think it can only be matched by a blue tail monitor because I know the blue tails have a super aggressive food drive too, um, let alone just a super aggressive demeanor for the most part from what I hear. Um, but it was super beneficial because it got to a point where the Argus and with the monitors in general, they're not identifying our hands as food, which is a super good key component to large lizard keeping. Um, the, the one of the biggest pieces of advice I give people when they say that they're hand feeding is it's cute when they're small, but wait till they get bigger. You're not going to want to hand feed anymore. <laughs> so, and that's so the, another safety thing we really do is that you know it, it's it's fine and dandy and it's cute but even if they are very well used to you they can still miss and when they latch on to food it's it's a pretty good latch right so use tools is there tools do you all use oh. for feeding oh or are you gonna ask something like that well kind of but i wanted to know like is there any legitimacy to the thing where don't feed live rodents because it may then you know attribute moving white things to your hand slash a rodent you know it may just white hadn't things. think that white your hand is socks. well yeah so oh. you'd be fine I'd i was about fucked, to ask i was know? about to say like what if you're a black person feeding it? <laughs> <laughs> well then you're in luck i guess i don't know moving white yeah i mean i've i've had a tegu and an argus monitor go after my sock before but they've never been fed live so i don't really from I really can't speak on it too much because I've never fed live to any of my animals. Yeah, me, me either. So, but I do know someone that has fed live and he never had any issues between handling and feeding live. It's kind of like, um, I mean, I guess I could say that I feed live because we feed live insects and we don't tongue feed them. We toss them in the cage so they chase them around. Yeah. So, so on a smaller scale murderous than a rodent <laughs> if anyone's ever seen a monitor kill a rodent it's like it savage funny? it's brutal well uh, we still get them that even though they're frozen thawed they um coincidentally our rhino iguana is meaner than any of the other animals we own yeah and he will rip them off the tongs and shake that thing like it's never been dead a day in its life so 
I mean, with the monitors too, my, my buddy posted a video of his where it was, he was feeding live and the mouse literally like jumped up a log to another log and then up a different one. And here comes the monitor and it did the same exact thing and did like a backflip to catch that thing midair. And it was like amazing to watch. And it's just like, dude, that's so cool. But, you know, as much as much as it would be, you know, it, it gives a lot of good mental stimulation to them. So I can't knock the people that feed live. But as long as you understand the risks that go with it, you're good. But as far as like noticing a difference in behavior, I never have. And I don't know anybody else that ever has. So, yeah. And now I guess we can go into the, the tool thing. So I guess kind of explain, I guess, also what... What target feeding is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then kind of what you <laughs> use. Talk about target. So with, with target feeding, we, 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 we use a target, which is just, you know, like a little target on a long stick. And you use that. And with a clicker, we just use one of those little, like a dog training clicker you have. And that is what you want the animal to key on, the key in on. A lot of times we rub it around the food, so it has that scent to get to it. And as far as the other tools, we use long hemostats and tongs. The goal is you want to create a distance between your hand and the prey item. Right. And the more distance you have, generally the better it works. Yeah. So we have, granted, I don't have a clicker with me, but everybody knows what a clicker is. Mm. So like target-wise, we have a target that's like this. And it's just an acrylic circle. Um, and what I like to do is I like to color coordinate certain things. So I'll stick with usually like the darker colors, whether it's purple or we also have the red target. For larger guys, this is the one that we use for the black throat. Um, and it's kind of like a little buoy on a stick. So the big thing with the uh, target, yeah, the, uh, the big thing with the target training is that differentiation between like he was explaining the hands and food and it also gives you a chance for um you know because we're not feeding live um it gives us a chance for that mental stimulation we can take the target and we can like we have pieces of driftwood that are trees we can take the target and run them up the tree because they'll follow the target you can run them back and forth in the cage you can do all that um, and then, you know, once they touch the target or finally catch the target, you do the click and then you can give them food. So the tongs that we use are this, the, they're super, super long tongs. Um, we also have hemostats at a variety of sizes. And the key thing, like he was explaining, is just to keep your distance between the food and the animal. And the big thing with us, how that helps, especially with the target and the clicker training, one of the big focuses that we would like to do eventually, especially with Hoot, the water monitor, because she is going to get such a big size. Um, when we bring her to outreach programs, it would be nice to have kind of a backup where if she decides to ever bolt or if she decides that, you know, she's just had enough and takes off. So what we can do is we can look like idiots at whatever show we're at and wave a target around or start clicking with the clicker. And hopefully she'll kind of get that recognition and um, come either not necessarily come back, but to kind of chill and take a break for a second and ponder where that noise is coming from, which will give us a chance to be able to um, get the animal back. It also helps us with like placement. If we want to eventually bring a, one of the big pieces of driftwood to an education display, we can use the target kind of as a placement. Um, whether that's even just taking the piece of driftwood with the target and putting the target at the end of the driftwood so that she stays close to the target. Um, I mean, there's a lot of bene benefits that come with target training, especially with doing outreach. But the main reason why we do what we do with the target training is for the food differentiation. 
because when you're doing outreach, the last thing you want is someone coming to your stand that smells like, I mean, hot dogs, or we live in the South, so they smell like seafood, and that's a big food source for the water monitor, and for her to bite bite the person or to get a little bit more on edge or hostile, all because of the way they smell. Now, of course, we have hand sanitizer and stuff like that, but... You know, um, you have those rare instances, and that's something that the target training can help us personally with as an organization. So um, as far as, like, just kind of hanging out and being a regular keeper and not doing the education, the target training and tong feeding definitely helps out with the trust-building factor because you don't want, you know, you want that animal to know that you're the one feeding them, but they also want to see you use certain tools so then when you open up the cage and you go to interact with the animal, Let's say you have your feeding tongs in your hand. Okay, she's gonna know she's gonna get she's gonna get food, or he's gonna know he's gonna get food. So he might be a little bit more on edge, or might be a little bit more on alert and a little bit more high strong. Versus when you open up the cage door and you don't have any tools in your hand, they're gonna be like, oh, okay, you're hanging out with me for now. So they'll be a little bit more calm. And the large lizards, especially your monitors, tiguanas, and iguanas, all have that that sensory to be able to notice the difference. Um, one of the big examples is with my Guatemalan spiny tail iguanas. I started trust building with them. Now, iguana trust building is completely different than your monitors and your tegus. But with the, uh, with the spiny tail iguanas, I had a red food cup that I would always feed them in this red food dish. And now it's to the point where if I even walk by their cage with anything, either I'm wearing red or I have a red food dish, they automatically think that they're getting food. So now that's their recognition to, okay, it's food time, let's hang out, versus the let's hang out time. So they absolutely, I mean, it helps not only the keeper, but it helps the animal too, because you have animals with such crazy intelligence that you know it gives them a little bit of a stimulation during the process and during the training process too. So now it helps with differentiation too, because yeah. there have been times we have goofed and smelled like food and they could smell the food unless we're like, Oh wait, they smell like food, but it's not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, a lot of people see, say things like MacGyver. Or I don't know if you remember Dave, the lizard guy, like people say, Hey, I want to get a Tegu or a rhino iguana. I want it to come to its name. I want it to, you know, be in my living room, hang out like a dog. I mean, how right. realistic is that? And how can you use, I mean, is that realistic as far as a behavioral standpoint? Right. So not only do I do hope, but I worked at an exotic pet store as well. And anytime anybody approaches me because we had a Tegu in the store for a while and anytime anyone would be like, oh, I see MacGyver the Tegu and he's going to live in my living room. And I just look at them and I'm like, okay, I say, you can keep him in your living room. Absolutely. No problem. So are you comfortable living in the eighties and mid nineties? Because if you're not, then, you know, the, the animal is not going to do well in your home. So, and that's the big thing. Like I pet sat this uh, one woman and she was dedicated to her green iguana and to the point where, I mean, we live in Florida. She did not put the AC on in that house during the day. She, I mean, that house was so hot. It was ridiculous. And the room that the iguana is, she completely converted. I mean, she lined the walls with waterproof 
um, PVC and with uh, the shower stall stuff. And then she had two humidifiers running in the room. She had a pond in the room. Um, she had tons of logs everywhere for it to climb on. So when you get to that level, like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Keep your animal. You know, it had its own room. Like, kind of has to do that with a green iguana, an adult green iguana. I mean, that. Right. But the thing is, is for some reason, people think with tegus, you don't have to do the same thing. I mean, you'll get people that are like, oh, it'll be my apartment dog. And it's like, yeah, you know what? Tegus can handle a little bit more temperate climates, but that doesn't mean that they thrive in them. That doesn't mean that they do well long term in them. You know, they're only in those temperate climates for a couple, I mean, a couple months tops out of the year. And usually during that time, they're brumating and they're not eating. So you're kind of, your animal might do okay, but you're not letting it live to its optimal potential. And having a tegu in apartment and having them free roam and doing stuff like that, unless you're taking the drastic measures like that iguana, iguana woman is taking, <laughs> you're, you're really not, you know, you're not benefiting the animal. And there's also the safety risk to it, too. I mean, a tegu, they could, I mean, something as stupid as getting your nails stuck in an outlet or eating a sock, eating a scrunchie, eating anything because it's a tegu. Like, like I mean... You have all those risks. If you have other pets in the house, you know, your dog or cat might be getting along with it at that moment, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. So there's too many factors involved when it comes to free roaming reptiles that make me uncomfortable. Um, so it's not really something that we advocate. It's actually something that we kind of frown upon because we don't want, you know, we don't want people thinking that these are, these are dogs as much as we love the lizards and as much as we love reptiles, period. And this is another debate. Um, they're, they're not domesticated animals, you know, they are still wild animals. So when you run into that factor with it, you have to, you know, not only keep your home safe, but keep the animal safe. And as a responsible keeper, you know, you should be doing all the research that goes into them. You should be seeing their care. You should be seeing where they're coming from. And just from that research alone, as a human that kind of can comprehend things, you should know that, hey, listen, this isn't going to do well inside of an apartment or this isn't going to do well inside of here. <laughs> like, I just, I mean, you read about where they come from. Like, I had someone that had a Savannah monitor that they were free roaming. And I'm looking at the person and I'm just like, you do realize that these animals can handle basking temperatures all the way up to 160 degrees where is that happening inside of your house? Like where? And they're like, oh, well, he sits in front of the window. I'm like, that doesn't mean, okay. Like, <laughs> so it's- He's, He obviously wants something. Give him more. Right, right. And it's, um, I mean, a lot of times, unfortunately, like you'll get people that just, they see those videos on YouTube and they see, you know, people that do it and they think that, oh, well, that one person does it, so it must be okay. Meanwhile, they don't keep up with that animal and they don't realize that, okay, maybe two years later, the animal died. Or two years later, the animal developed gout and liver disease or kidney failure or like the uh, any any medical problem for that matter because when you have an animal that needs such high temperatures and such high humidity and, you know, access to mental stimulation and stuff like that, and you deprive them of that, that's where you get the medical problems and they come up quick. I mean, 
it it's an unfortunate thing. I had a Savannah monitor that developed gout within the first five months of me owning her. And that was because I, w- I was young, I was ignorant, and I thought I knew what I was doing. I made YouTube videos advocating what I was doing. And then I got approached by Wayne Harvey, um, who is a really, really big uh, Savannah monitor kind of person. And uh, he just kind of said, hey, listen, like, why don't you try doing it this way? And it'll help you out a lot. And it did. But unfortunately, by the time I got in contact with him, my animal already developed those medical problems. And the last thing that I would want for someone else to go through is to have those medical problems. And especially when you have an animal that is coming from the wild and an animal that is, I mean, not to sound like an animal rights activist, but an animal that is literally being taken from its homeland, thrown inside of a shipping container with potentially hundreds of other dead animals of the same species that aren't making it all to go to a home that doesn't know what it's doing. Like to me, that's ignorant. And that's something that with hope in general, we hope to be able to change. Ha ha. Look what I did. (laughs) So, so, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, I don't know. I guess a a big thing we see in the hobby is the need to anthropomorphize these animals like dogs and cats. And don't get me wrong. I think I think reptiles can make some absolutely amazing pets. Oh yeah. But it you still have to understand, you know, comparing reptiles to domesticated animals, you know, even domesticated animals have their bad days to where they don't want to be messed with. It's like comparing apples to oranges instead of oranges to oranges. And at the very to go along with what she said, you know, unless you're gonna spend a whole lot of time converting a room to something that can withhandle heat and humidity. Not only you're doing your animals, doing things there are detrimental to your health. You're also doing horrible things to your house and possibly detrimental to your own health. Oh yeah. At the same time, if you have large lizards, you know our our water monitor is going to get between five to six feet, if not more. That's a very destructive animal. And if you like your house or apartment. I think a little common sense wisdom goes a long way and say, hey, maybe I shouldn't let an animal that can put holes through my drywall loose all the time mm-hmm. or knock over my very expensive TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is y'all set up in your house currently? <clears throat> well, Just at the house. Um. <laughs> 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 Right now we have, we converted our garage into a little mini facility and all of our animals are in custom built enclosures um, versus we have, we have some snakes that are in exoterras, but for the most part, everything like behind us is all custom built. So um, our water monitor, I mean, everybody, we've kind of gotten to a steady point where everybody has all of their husbandry needs and demands. Um, obviously we can always go bigger. So that is a goal that we have within this year is to get everybody in a little bit bigger cages. But right now we have the water monitor in a six by probably a six by four by, by five, by four, six by four by four. And then we have, um, the rhino iguana. He's in a custom built. That's a seven and a half by four by probably about a by a four. I'm really bad with dimensions, but I mean, all of our guys are all in custom built enclosures and um, they all have different kind of like heat elements and UVB elements to replicate what they need in the wild. So 
And we really can't stress enough, if you do decide to go down a large lizard route, you are going to have to go with custom build. There is yeah. no commercially made enclosure that can meet their needs. There are there are some people that are doing commercial, like large lizard ones. Like I know Herptastic Reptiles is doing some um, and a couple other people that sell them, but you're not you're not looking at an aquarium. No matter what you're looking at, somebody is building something for you. So even with the smaller species. Why do you think there is no commercial? Uh, I'm sorry? Why do you think there aren't any commercial ones? Probably because of the cost. I mean, the thing is, is you can go to Home Depot. Like us, we build all of our cages in-house. You can go to Home Depot and you can build a six by four by four, I think, hoots cage, including lighting, electrical, um, the acrylic door, the caster wheels, all the stuff in the cage. It was about $400 to build the cage. And a lot of the commercial cages, I mean, you're looking at once you get past the building material, so you have $400 in building material, then you have probably another $200 in labor, and then you have to make some sort of money from it. So then you probably have another four to $500 in, mar in you know, markup. And by the time you're done with that, you're looking at anywhere between a $900 to $1,500 cage that a lot of people, you know, they don't. They don't either have that type of money or that's just too much and they don't want to do it. So that's probably why a lot of the commercial people aren't doing the bigger cages. But I do know that, like I said, I know some of them are willing to do it. You're just going to pay for it. And I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to have somebody in the family that's really carpentry savvy before you get a large lizard. So stay best friends with that person or <laughs> become super tight with that family member if you plan to get a large lizard. Thanks, brother-in-law. Yeah. This is for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel real stupid because we are almost two hours into this and I just realized my microphone is off. <laughs> oh, wow. Good thing oh, you didn't no. talk too much. <laughs> no one told us in the chat. I, mean, I, guess I guess you weren't hear really me. talking. Yeah, I, I can see. hear you. Yeah, we can we hear, can you. hear you. Yeah, I don't know. I guess your mic has just been picking up really strong. Yours is on, oh. right? Yeah. Well, yes, mine is on. We've been talking this oh, whole time. I don't know if it's been picking up from the computer. Wow, yeah, that's ridiculous. but mine's been off. So everyone can probably hear me a lot better now. So what I really like, the root of what everyone wonders, I guess, when they're looking for a lizard, whether it's keeping it in my apartment, but they're like, do they show affection or do they have a want for you to hang out with them or touch them or or is it all food driven i'd say i wouldn't say affection but it is it, it and it certainly is food driven and most of the time but i think with your large lizards they look at you as kind of like a source of entertainment like when you come around okay if you you're want, my tree yeah you're my tree you're gonna feed me or you're gonna take me out and that gets me out of the house, I guess you could say. You're, you're a source of enrichment. Like with Hoot, there's a lot of times to where we can open up her enclosure door and she will just crawl right out onto us because we're, we're a source of enrichment. You know, if we've been at work or we've been out, out in town, we have different smells on us or we'll walk around the room, she gets to see some and she gets to climb on us and explore. It's, it's like a source of entertainment for them. And it, you know, it's it's good for it's good for them because it's it's enrichment, it's stimulation. At the same time, it's good for you because you're like, oh, you like me today, right? It's um, 
And I definitely, I definitely agree with that too. I was going to see if we had different opinions on that, but it's kind of the same. You're, I don't necessarily think like the affection is always food driven, but I, it's definitely curiosity based. Like, um, with, like he was saying with Hoot, especially she'll kind of like crawl over and like sniff all around. And then she always wants to explore whether it's on you or around you or getting on the floor and just kind of like walking around and chilling out. Um, now my spiny, my one spiny tail iguana, I have the Guatemalans. Um, the male is EO and the female is Vela and EO is super like anytime I walk by the glass, he always is like scratching at the cage, trying to get out. So I'll open up the cage door and he'll come right out, hang out on my shoulder and chill. Um, now whether some people would consider that affection or like me, I consider it more, okay, he's looking for some sort of enrichment and mental stimulation. Like, yeah, absolutely. There are days where I'm like, oh, you love me and want to cuddle me. But I know deep down inside, it's just he's bored, saw me walk by and is hoping that while I have him out on my shoulder, I'll give him food because nine times out of 10, I usually do. So <laughs> they, kind, they kind of learn like that whole, um, they're smart enough to pick up your schedule and your routine and what you're going to do with them. And I mean, you'll get people that will be in bed and they'll say that, oh, my, my tegu or my iguana is snuggling with me and it's got its eyes closed and it's huddling super close to me. And, you know, it, it could be that that's what that animal is doing. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, nine times out of 10, it's just because the animal is cold and is seeing your body heat for, you know, some sort of heat. And also they close their eyes because they're stressed. So it's, it kind of goes down that road of understanding your animal's behavior again. Like with, uh, with a lot of the iguanas and stuff, you'll have people that while they're petting their iguana, their eyes are closed and they think that that's adorable. When in reality, what that animal is doing is pretending that nothing is happening around it and hoping that if it has no reaction, that you'll go away. So it boils down to understanding that behavioralism and it also kind of goes down to, you know, when you do the trust building, that relationship with your animal, that's when you get more of a bond with the animal. I mean, I look at right now I have the swamper iguanas or the utilia spiny tail iguanas that kind of just came in. We've only had them for a couple of weeks and the female is already getting to a point where she'll kind of come up to the food dish because I'll hold the food dish up to her to kind of get that trust. So she's getting to the point where when she sees me walk by with the food dish, she's starting to come around. And eventually that relationship will get a little bit stronger where hopefully it'll be more like our Guatemalan spiny tail iguanas where they'll try to come out more because they know that there's a benefit for them for it too. So it's kind of like that whole, you know, I'm going to get interaction with you and you get food from me. And eventually, you know, you phase the food out and you don't make like with the iguanas, you don't do the trust building as much with food and you do it more with interaction and okay, you're not going to get food this time, but you get some mental stimulation, you get time out of your cage, you get to explore. So that's more the relationship versus kind of a cuddly and affected, affectionate relationship to me. But I, I will say this, ultimately, the type of relationship you have with your animal is ultimately dependent on the animal itself. Yeah. They all have their own personalities. Right. There was one person who had a black dog monitor and it took him six years to even be able to touch him. Wow. Within our own black dog, it took me three years to be able to not only touch Diesel, be able to lift him up at the same time. Right. Well, I had a mangrove monitor up north that I worked with 
it was probably about three years of trust building before I could even put my hand near her. And then one day it just kind of like, she just picked it up and was like, Oh, you're not going to hurt me and climbed right up my arm. And I'll never forget. It was like my profile picture for the longest time because I was like, Oh man, it took so long, but it was like, literally it was just me sideways with her up on my shoulder with the biggest smile on my face because you know, when it's that trust building relationship, that time, that effort that you put into it. And it's such a different feeling when you like go in and pick an animal up and you're like, oh, it loves me. And it's trying to stress and get all away versus an animal actually coming to you. And that's what I always tell people that have the large lizards. It's like, listen, like I know I'm a big advocate for trust building. And I know people say that, you know, it takes too long and it's not worth it. But I swear to you, that moment that animal comes to you and makes that decision, your whole life will change. Like, and I have a mangrove monitor that uh, my buddy Kai gave me. How long have we had Thwip? We've had Thwip for like almost a year. And I still can't, I can't even tong feed it yet. I'm, it's like my little empty cage syndrome baby. So I literally, I put a food dish inside the cage and as long as the food's gone every time, I know it's alive. I know it's okay. <laughs> and that's just how it's going to be. And if that's how it is forever, that's how it is forever. At least I know the animal's doing okay and he's healthy. And that's what me means more to me than overstressing an animal for my entertainment. And that kind of boils down more to the hope, um, you know, what we do as an organization with our animals for outreach. Um, so with Hope, you were talking about you have a couple different chapters. Are you still heavily involved with those chapters? Do they kind of do their own thing? Uh, for the most part, they kind of do their own thing. What we do is with the chapters, we uh, we always talk, we keep in communication and like we'll pass outreach material between the groups. Uh, the Buffalo chapter has kind of died down a little bit only because I know the person that's in charge of it right now is having some vehicle issues but i know once he gets all those under control he'll probably start you know being a little bit more involved but our vermont chapter and our he's like vermont and granville new york area that's more like near white plainsy so probably more towards your neck of the woods right where are you guys at i don't know i lived in poughkeepsie but Maybe yeah. that's what it was okay gotcha um so he's more in that area and I know he does a lot of programs. So, but as far as like our direct involvement, it's kind of more like, uh, Hey, what's up boss? Like, this is what we're doing this week. Or we got these animals in this time. And do you have any recommendations for this? And Hey, can we get some of these care sheets? So like they, they run their own program. They do their own thing. You know, they have their own animals, they have their own outreach material, but if there's anything that we can do to help them with, like we always work super close with them. So it's kind of more of a relationship like that. Like I know most recently, um, John, who is the guy from the Vermont chapter, he messaged me and was like, hey, I really need some help finding. Uh, he wants a black racer and a, Lacer a jeweled Lacerda for outreach. So he messaged me and was like, can you help me find one? And it's like, yeah, sure. And he didn't find a blue, he didn't find a Lacerda, but he found a blue tongue skink instead. And so, I mean, through through talking and networking we just kind of work with each other in that way now how do you like preserve the balance between the opinion that you pretty much just said about like no unnecessary stress on the animal and then bringing them out you know for presentations and whatnot right and that's where um 
kind of the big factor where if our animals show any stress, we kind of take them out. Um, we have a, probably the most recent one is we have a blue tongue skink named, named Slinky. And Slinky has always been like super good with outreach. He's never had any problems. And most, probably at our most recent event, he actually defecated on one of the volunteers, which with blue tongue skinks, they usually shit all over you and then bolt away. And that's one of their big defense things, minus the whole open the mouth. So we'll probably give him a break for a while and see, you know, how he handles it and stuff like that. But all the animals that we bring for the programs, um, they're all, we condition all of them to get used to situations like this. We make sure that when we bring them out in public, we watch like a hawk, those stress factors. And, you know, if we notice that, okay, the animal doesn't do well when it's interacted with by the public, but it's okay being handled by one of us. Like EO, our spiny tail iguana, he's done three programs so far. Yeah. Um, and he's in the starting phases of doing outreach. And so far we noticed that if let's say Caleb holds him, he stresses out more. But when I hold him, he's completely relaxed and chill. There's no posturing. There's no dewlap. There's no anything. So during outreach, we have special rules and conditions for certain animals. Like, okay, EO is specifically an animal that only I'm working with right now. But eventually, we hope to be able to get him used to factors and stuff like that. But if it gets to a point where they don't and they don't ever calm down for outreach or they always stay stressed out for outreach, then point blank, we just won't use them in the program. Like the yellow anaconda we had, I got her, well, he bought her for, he bought her for Christmas for me. And specifically I wanted her for outreach, but she is a yellow anaconda. She's a facer. <laughs> she goes right for your face. And it's just kind of like, all right, you might not ever make an education animal and that's okay. The salve that we have, I mean, taking a Savannah monitor, granted we're in Florida. So you have a little bit more leniency with the temperatures and everything, but the basic rule of thumb with high humidity animals is you don't want to have them out of their enclosure for long periods of time. So let's say if we were to ever bring him to an event, instead of having him be like an animal that we hold and pass around, he would be in an exhibit. So he would be in an enclosure. Um, and that's kind of a lot of the differences that we do. Like some of the animals that are a little bit more hands off, like we have a a cape house snake. He's a cape, right? Yep. We have a cape house snake and we took him to an event and a bunch of kids handled him and he went off feed for about two months. Yeah. So we don't use him at all anymore. We will never use him in a program. So, and that's kind of the whole measuring your animal safety versus entertainment thing. And then we have, we have Tundra who is our boa constrictor. He has been to every event we have done yeah. except when he's in shed yep. and he just does great. He handles it just fine. He, deals with all the people just fine we take him home we feed him he eats no problems and now what kind of animals do you guys bring out so obviously you have a lot of four-legged animals but you have a rotation like set in place or well, obviously yeah. you know you change it if they're stressed out but do you have a, a schedule or rotation that you try to stick to right um so we have one of the big things with hope is we don't want to overcrowd ourselves with animals um as much as we would love to take in every single animal that is thrown at us one of the reasons why we have volunteers is because they have their own reptile collections as well 
or they have their own bird collections. So not only do we get the animals that we have in-house, we also get our volunteers' animals that we can use as well. So that helps a lot with rotation. Like one of our volunteers, um, James, he just recently got a blue tongue skink himself. So that means we'll be able to switch back and forth between our slinky and his blue tongue. And then that way we're not putting too much stress on ours and we can kind of flip it back and forth. Granted, presuming that his, these animal, their volu our volunteers' animals are going to be okay with doing outreach. Um, but we have, I know we can go volunteer for volunteer. Amber, she has a bearded dragon, a crested gecko, a little hatchling sulcata tortoise, and a black throat monitor that we use on occasion. Um, her black throat monitor is a lot smaller than what ours was, so he was a lot easier to manage. And he also didn't really show that many signs of stress. But he was also kind of um, like if we went to a reptile expo and we had a display, he would usually be toted for most of the day and just kind of come out for the presentation and go back. So he was he's still in his conditioning period right now. Um, and then we have James who has water snakes and a blue tongue skink that we can use. And then we have James and Courtney, who they're volunteers. Sorry, James, Joe and Courtney. They're going to kill me. Uh, we have Joe and Courtney who are volunteers, but they don't have any animals that we can use for outreach, but they still are like heavily involved. And then we have Sandy, who has a variety of birds that she has. Like she has a hornbill, she has macaws, she has a collectus, she has all those animals that we can use for outreach. Um, so we have her for that. And then we have Jessica, who is a volunteer, and she has like a plated lizard. So um, he would be, still be new because she just recently joined the, pro the uh, outreach program. But like we could potentially use her plated lizard. And then we have Alyssa, who is actually moving from Alabama to Florida, and she has a reticulated python. And so long as we get all the proper permits for the CSP, we'll be able to house and use her reticulated python uh, for our programs. And then in-house here with us, we have the blue tongue skink, we have a snow boa, we have a black milk snake. Um, I've got to look around at the same time. Then we have... Um, Petrie, the rhino iguana that we bring out on occasion, he's still in his conditioning. Uh, we have Eo, the spiny tail iguana, the Guatemalan, he comes. And then we have the Gulf Coast box turtle, Foxy Boxy, uh, Yoshi and Yoda, the Chinese box turtles, and then Snap Trap, the common snapping turtle. And who? And who? Who? Who is completely new to outreach? He's been. She's been to one event. She's been to two. Which two did she go to? The herb society meetings. That was one. Oh, she's been to two somewhere. Oh, well, we, whatever. We, then we have um, the water monitor who she's actually going to be going to. We have Rep Today next weekend, <clears throat> Repticon. So she'll actually be going to that to try and see, you know, how she handles big crowds. And it's that when you're first introducing an animal to outreach, it's, it's just paying attention to body language. Like the whole, you know, is she stressing out, but does she calm down after a little bit? So do we think maybe she can handle it? And when we take an animal to an event for the first time, you know, it's a lot of in and out of the tote. And, you know, okay, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to keep you out for 10, 15 minutes. I'm going to put you back in, leave you in for about an hour. Then I'm going to take you out again. And it's that whole like, okay, the in and out automatically on its own is a potential stress factor. 
Um, so you have to watch, you know, every time you take the animal out, are they bolting to the side of the tote trying to get away from you or are they kind of handling it okay and it's not really bothering them? Because another thing too, which um, a lot of programs, they'll say, well, just freeze your animal, don't heat them. Well, all of our animals are heated. If it's cold inside or if it's cold outside, um, I mean, if it's cold outside, we won't bring the animals to the event, but if it's cold inside, you know, all of our animals have heat pads. At no point in time are we going to compromise our animals' health for outreach. So, um, you know, when conditioning, especially when we work with Hoot, uh, we're bringing her more for, we have a presentation at Rep Today that we're doing on large lizards. So we're bringing her more for the presentation, but it's that whole gaining a crowd factor. Are we going to be able to work with her in large crowds? And that's what we'll be kind of eyeballing for the most uh, for most of the day at rep today with it, her it's it's a little nerve-wracking at first because you try to you try to come up with a plan like okay if the animal behaves this way we counter with this way and a lot of things that what we do is to help i guess you could say prepare for crowds we'll have like our volunteers over and if they never really interacted with them before we start with them because it's new people mm -hmm. and you and you see how they do if you think there's a sign to where they could become okay. You you keep trying a little bit more each time, and if it's just a complete no go, you you take a step back and you reevaluate, and then you decide if that could change. If not, you don't worry about it. Yeah. Like with our house snake, our house snake is not good for events like that, but with a few individuals, he does very well. He does very well with our daughter. He did very well with our niece. Right. Like I think. The house snake's name is Simba. So I think Simba would be okay being on display, but I don't think Simba can handle being handled. And then that's kind of where you learn your, your differences. You guys um, are very creative in your names. I have to say. Thank you. Yeah, we try. We try. <laughs> we have one that is consistently called by a name. McDonald's. Yeah, we're, we're bad and McDonald, at that. And that's it. And mother of McDonald's, so too. Because <laughs> we named the first one. So yeah, that's sad. Her mother of McDonald's. That's but, awesome. So I'm one of those weird people that, like, my names have to mean something. Except for Thwip. Except for Thwip. No, that still means something. It does. You led me on for so long with that. <laughs> with, with my mangrove monitor, I had Aya. And for the longest time, he's like, oh, it's just a really pretty name you came up with. And I'm like... Have you ever read comic books? And they're like, yeah, that's where the name came from. <laughs> He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. So we got when Kai, um, my buddy, gave me the other mangrove monitor. He's like, what are you going to name it? I'm like, oh, we're going to look up a whole bunch of different comic book sounds and name it something. So we named it Thwip. For when Spider-Man does. For when... <laughs> like, like, so we, we have funny names, but um I don't know. Your names are more simplistic. Like you have Slinky, Tundra, Simba. I have Bagari, Awani, Eo. Yours are just straight Yossi. up made up at some point. <laughs> what? I feel like yours are half made up. Yeah, but they're not. Like okay, Yasi. So the the first. She Savannah, looks up meaning their native range dialect half the time. Yeah, the first Savannah monitor I ever had. Her name was Jasper. So I looked up in Ghana what languages they speak, and Yaspi in Ghana means Jasper. So I named him Yaspi. Then I have Eo, which means handsome in Guatemalan, and Vela, which means beautiful in, Gu in Guatemalan. Like, see, so it all has meaning. It's just not in our language. So people are like, 
that name didn't make sense. I'm like, I, but it it does. Like, uh, I want to say so for the Swampers we have Bagari, and Bagari means soul in the Honduran language. Do you and then do with the English language? Is it not good enough? <laughs> no, it's not. It's horrible. I hate it. No. <laughs> um, but then we have Awani, which means uh, heart in the Honduran language. So, like, I don't know. That's just always been, like, my thing when it comes to naming animals. I always do the really weird names. And then I have a cockatoo named Doodles. So you can't totally make fun of me. I have a simplistic bird name. I mean, that should count. I mean, she can't make fun of you. Does that actually have meaning to you, Doodles? Doodles, no. <laughs> I tried changing her name when she was donated to the program and it didn't work. So Doodles stuck. So but I tried training. Oh, sorry. sorry. No, go, go. I was just saying, I tried changing it to something simple like Rexy and she didn't want it. So Doodles stuck. So how often, honestly, are like people like, take my animal, take my animal, I can't keep it, I can't do it, like, please take it? Yeah, um... <laughs> We, so uh, to hope specifically, probably at least once a week we get people that contact us, but we also make it known that, you know, we're not a reptile rescue. We do situationally take in animals, but because of quarantine, I mean, when we moved into the bigger, into this bigger house and a lot more acreage, like we have three separate areas for quarantine, but it's still not something that I'm totally comfortable doing. So on a situational base, we'll take it in, but probably about once a week we get asked about taking something in. Now at the pet store I work on and work at, it's daily. And we were super lucky. We just recently, actually yesterday I had, um, there is Rescue Rangers, which is a local reptile rescue that they're an upcoming nonprofit. And, um, you know, he, is his name's Ray. He's a super nice guy, very intelligent, very knowledgeable on reptile rescues, the quarantine factors and everything that needs to be done. So we just made a good connection with him. And we're like, hey, listen, you know, we get these calls and we get a lot of animals thrown at us that, you know, I'll be completely honest with you, like, we're not a reptile rescue. And, you know, our outreach program, the main thing we try and do is educate to prevent the need for rescues. But that doesn't mean that rescues aren't needed. So, you know, we, we reached out to him and we're like, you know, if we get calls, can we forward them over to you? So that's kind of a big thing with, uh, within still keeping the network kind of like home, home body of what hope right. was to begin with, to make sure that we have other organizations that we can work with and contact when we do get rescue calls or anything like that. So. And I was just wondering, cause we're, we're running low on time, but one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys is do you guys disagree on anything <laughs> as far as monitors oh, and, and large lizards? Hmm. Go ahead. You won't get in trouble. <laughs> I don't really know though. <laughs> um, I feel like when I first, when I first moved down here, we butt heads on husbandry a little bit. Like I'm a hundred percent custom built enclosures and no keeping like monitors and tanks and all that stuff. And granted, um, I mean, you were in a tight spot when you first got hoot and everything like that. Yeah. So he had two water monitors, uh, Grimlock and hoot and Grimlock. We actually ended up selling to my one buddy because it just got to a point where 
you know, I was like, you, you have two lizards that aren't ever going to be able to be housed together that need like 10 by 10 enclosures. And when are we going to get the space for that? So I feel like that was really the only thing that we butt heads on, but we ended up agreeing in the end and we kept who and my buddy down South, he has Grimlock. And I mean, um, yeah, I think that that's really it. And even then, like you still understood that we needed everybody in custom enclosures. It's not like you were against it. It was just not feasible at the time. And when I moved down here, I brought a lot of my cages with me. So I, I happened to have an extra custom and was like, well, we can at least toss Hoot inside of the custom. And then we gave Grimlock to our buddy. Um, but no, we're actually pretty much on the same page for pretty much everything. Yeah, when it comes to most reptile stuff, we we tend to be on the same page nine times out of ten. Except we do debate and fight over whose turn it is to get something next. It's that mine. that we fight about a lot. It's mine, by the way. I know it's your turn. It's your turn. <laughs> it's totally so your turn. I mean, totally does better. the the price of the animal come into play, or is it just like Brittany gets one, Caleb gets one? Or... Uh, well, well, the price comes into play when I want mm-mm. something. No, hold on. <laughs> when she wants something, it's like, hey, look what someone's giving me. Yeah, well, see, okay, that's the problem. Like with me, people, it sounds bad. I'm not trying to be cocky, but people will be like, oh, hey, Brittany, I have this. Do you want it? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I've wanted it. Like so, like when I got the mangrove monitor, all I had to do was pay shipping, and then my buddy gifted it to me. We got the spiny tails donated by Ty. Uh, the speckled king snakes, I got a pair of them. Wow, I've had a lot of turns. <laughs> the speckled king snakes I got, they were $25 for a <clears throat> pair, and I've always wanted speckled kings. I had them in Buffalo, and I gave them to a breeder when I moved down, so I wanted them again. She also makes poor decisions at times. Yeah, so whatever. So, <laughs> so I got the speckled king snakes. And then the salve came in from work and my manager literally looked at me and was like, I can't keep a monitor here. And I was like, all right, well, you're lucky. I just had a six foot cage open. So I guess I'll take it. So like I get animals tossed to me. Meanwhile, he wants, the latest thing he wants now is Aki's. And I contacted every single person I know. No, no, no. You can see in the reflection there, you see that cage way up top there? What, what's mm-hmm. that? My yellow anaconda. Okay, I forgot about her. I got her for Christmas. But anyways, who bought that? Shut up. The, that the, doesn't uh, count as your turn. See? Oh, I know. It, it wasn't for me. She, she wanted. She goes, it's, honey, I really want a yellow anaconda. But she's saying it's a gift, so it doesn't I'm, count as a turn. She didn't get it. You got it. Ah. <sighs> so anyways. I'm not say anything. <laughs> so the uh the Aki thing, like I contacted every single person I know. And my one buddy contacted me back. He's like, Yeah, man, I have a red Aki I can give you no problem, pay shipping. So I go back to him, I was like, dude, I got you a red Aki and he goes, Well, I want a yellow. I'm like <laughs> So it gets to a point where it's like I can't stop you from being so stubborn on what you want. Oh, oh, you're on top about stubbornness. Yeah, I have a lot of weird species that I want. But no, I mean, that's literally the only thing that we argue about. <laughs> now, I'm totally on break. I'm not getting anything until I can get him Ackies, but we'll see. There's a reptile expo next weekend. <clears throat> so. I don't know Those are nice, small, red- readily of. 
Well, not as readily available, but right. at least it doesn't take up 10 feet by 10 exactly. feet. Exactly, exactly. So, and we have a vision cage that one or a pair would do nice in. Now, there was, I kind of went down, and just because I have you guys here, and I don't know who else to ask, uh, I went down like a tegu rabbit hole, and I was trying to research how oh, how tegus got released in the wild in South Florida, and I've heard people say that one or a large lizard breeder released a group which seemed controlled on purpose and then another one was like we don't really know the source of it and then one person says it's only chicoans and one person says it's only argentines um do you know anything on this please help <laughs> do you, okay i'll do it so and you're safe um, to say whatever i won't tell no <laughs> oh, I'll, no we're good i will say it all we I don't had... care if you say a name spell the name i don't uh-huh, give a shit uh-huh. there there was no i'll say the name because he owes me 350 dollars. so if that anybody can find south. him that wasn't down south where was he he panama was in city. panama city but still okay there were okay so there's there's two so then there's two there is bobby hill who if anybody knows where Bobby Hill is, please let the whole Tegu world know because he owes a lot of people a lot of money. Um, he really he lives in Panama City, and what happened was is one day he just went AWOL and released a lot of his Tegus out. Um, and he took a lot of baby orders and then just disappeared. So I was one of those people that fell victim to um, paying him for a Chicoan Tegu and then never receiving it, which is why I say he owes me $350. Not that you're bitter. No, not bitter at all. That was, what, like (laughs) eight years ago? It was a long time ago. But most of those were caught and destroyed. Yeah, most of those guys were caught and destroyed. Now, down south, there was a Tegu breeder, and what hurricane was it? Hurricane Ivan? No. I didn't know okay. Andrew was the Burmese when the Burmese got out, supposedly. I don't know actually how they really happened. There's just a lot of speculation about how they got down south. There, Yeah, there's a lot of speculation that um, down <laughs> south there's a lot of reptile facilities and there was a hurricane that came through and demolished the breeding facility and released a lot of the animals into the wild. That is probably the biggest speculation and in all honesty, probably the biggest reason and cause. So, but yeah, it's Marley. You got it. There it. Our kid just knocked on the door. But, but, um, yeah. Huh? How old is your daughter? She's four. Does she help out or do anything? Yeah, yeah, she does. She loves the box turtles. Turtles are her favorite. She's like that weird, I like turtles guy. That's her. <laughs> so, to 100% to a T. What did she make? That's for you. Aw, she colored me a necklace. <laughs> but no, she's like a crazy turtle girl. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the tegus and berms and everything getting released, there's no like pinpoint as to what caused it. But a lot of the people, especially down here, think that a hurricane hit a facility and released a lot of them. And honestly and truly, that makes sense. You had some, I think it was Hurricane Andrew. That's what it was. Hurricane Andrew did the berms. Hurricane Andrew did the berms. But it would make sense if he did the Tegus, yeah, too. Yeah, Tegus came way later, remember? Oh. Well, I don't know. But, yeah, no, it, it's all still speculation. There's no... No one is going to come clean and come honest and be like, hey, guess what, guys? It was me. Oopsie. So, yeah, like, mm, just ruined a whole population. 
But I mean, <clears throat> the Tegu as the what? He has a berm easily as far as like they're a very destructive animal who eats a lot. Right. But the Tegu is like, I mean, people will approach us all the time. Like when we had jazz, um, our biggest thing was that he was invasive. And, you know, unfortunately, as much as we love reptiles, Tegus are killing bird populations. I mean, they go for the eggs and they they go in burrows and there's a lot there's like some super critically endangered species of field mouse that they're not helping with and i mean tegus are super destructive so unfortunately um you know the capture and either resell or the capture and destroy some is something that as much as it pains me to say that we support in ways because and that's where like the contradicting stuff comes in but because they are killing the ecosystem in certain ways um, with that being said, I know a lot of the whole like, oh, there's thousands of berms in the Everglades and it's like, mm, no, there's not thousands. There, there's a decent amount, but it does definitely get over-exaggerated. So, and out of all the invasive species Florida has, tegus are probably the ones that are the worst and, besides could, cats. and could potentially move forward. Right. Besides uh, cats. For, forward north because of their ability to brumate. Right. 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 So we have completely kept y'all over time <laughs> and over the two hours we said. Well, I, that sucks because I have so many more questions because I don't know anything about Well, it's about. 10 o'clock. So. Well, one thing before just to wrap it up, because you're talking to a lot of snake people who honestly, like we keep, I mean, it might as well be a stick in a plastic tote in comparison i mean these things they eat depending on what you keep but yeah 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 that's true. <laughs> Obviously, there's varying degrees but none of them are doing much thinking so and i don't keep it at 130 degrees <laughs> and you know all these and i don't have supplemental you know uv that kind of stuff i mean what can you tell like a person just getting in even if they're coming from snakes I mean, when they're getting into monitors, I mean, what is there something or what would you tell, you know, a first time monitor keeper, or large lizard keeper? A temp gun is going to be your best friend. Yes. <laughs> Use it wisely yeah. and often. It's like the gift that we give everybody. Like here, welcome to the, welcome to the dark side of large lizards. Have your temp gun. Like, I, <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I mean... The big thing and the biggest difference between keeping snakes and keeping large lizards is probably the mental stimulation and space. You know, I noticed that when a lot of people come from the snake realm and flip into specifically like monitors, they tend to think that them having too much space is going to stress them out. Um, because in the snake world, depending on what species you're, you're keeping, usually they like those tight spaces. Um, and it's different when it comes to monitors. You know, you have an animal that's actively seeking throughout the day. Um, I'll toss superworms, mealworms, and roaches inside my cages so that they always have something to do and think about. So you're not only thinking about the general care of the animal when it comes to husbandry, but you have to think about the mental health of the animal as well. And I mean, it goes that way with snakes too. I mean, snakes enjoy climbing on stuff. They like hiding and moving around things. And I don't know, um, heat is a big issue. 
I like to tell people when you go into Lizards, especially instead of a pet store being your pet store, Home Depot is more your pet store than anything else. Good point. We have a Home Depot card. Yeah. So, I mean, Home Depot credit cards come in <laughs> very handy here. So, um, Lowe's, Home Depot, Ace, they all become your best friends. Sponsor us. <laughs> like, we just plugged them. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I mean, like for heating cages, you're not using like radiant heat panels. You're not using under tank heating. You're actually having to provide like heavy basking areas. And we do that by using the halogen floodlights, like the indoor, the indoor outdoor floodlights. Um, so yeah, so you have that. And then when you do UV lighting, um, it's just, I don't know, just learning essentially the differences between that. I think those are really the only differences is between the mental stimulation and lighting. And that, and you know, when you get a monitor that's properly heated, it is like the redheaded stepchild that you just gave like a fifteen-pound bag of sugar to. <laughs> it's they, they it, they're zero to a hundred. Yeah, and like me, it's. I mean, I find myself like when I work with, when I work with any of the monitors I have, like my Savannah monitor is super aggressive. Um, he's very food aggressive and territorial, but um, like with him, I won't use gloves. I'll just hands in, no, no problem, no issue. When I handle my yellow anaconda, granted, I know her bite isn't that bad. I wear gloves. So like I have that different mentality when it comes to snakes and like I'm super passive when it comes to handling large lizards versus when I go and handle even our black milk snake. I'm like, little bit more i mean it's just like my comfort level so and i feel like a lot of snake people kind of tend to be a little bit more nervous around the lizards because of you know how quick they move you have the tail whip factor versus just the s position and the strike like you yeah, have so legs. much more yeah hey, hey you want to tell much your yeah. diesel tail whip no you can the tail whip was nasty she left me and she left me it hurt it did i have super sensitive thighs and i got whipped by diesel the six foot black girl monitor and when he whipped me it started bleeding and i guess i completely underestimated how strong a tail whip would be from him because at, like he even said he's like you're in tail range i'm like it's fine i got pants on meanwhile i have leggings on so like, are they even pants? And then I go to the side of him and he just right on my thigh, right through my tattoo. And it just started gushing. And I'm just like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. I literally, we had two volunteers here and I just- dipped. They didn't help. They didn't have help at all. I just dipped. I'm like, I'm out, it hurts. <laughs> so I, I like ran to the bathroom, took care of it. And mind you, like if my thighs weren't as sensitive as they already are, it might not have been as bad, but- that was done. So it's just, you have, I don't know, instead of just a strike, you have more chances of getting There's, hurt. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's one thing. We only have one sharp end. You have like six sharp ends. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you know what, like I've been bit, you know, I've, I've had big constrictors like, and when I had, um, I had a burn when I had her, I mean, and I got bit by her once and I'm like, Oh, that's not that bad but I take a lot more precaution when it comes to snakes than I do large lizards, which probably isn't a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It would, but, it would be the opposite for me. Yeah. Right. So it, it's just a matter of getting used to it and understanding those differences. 
But now, one one like thing that strikes me is that. Stop asking more questions. Well, it's okay. I, I mean, wondering. honestly, like I'm okay, but I understand if y'all gotta go. <laughs> like, well, I'm just well, curious he never because thinks about me who has to wake up at six a.m. Well, you can tomorrow. go. You can go to sleep. It's ten right o'clock. <laughs> well, I want to know because from the snake world, we like to keep everything very sterile. We seem like we need to keep things sterile, but you guys seem to take things out of your backyard like a lot of monitor people even like dirt and stuff like that i mean that's so different yeah now i will tell you one of the biggest differences between keeping up north versus down here is i will not pull anything from the wild like i would in new york can i tell them why fire ants fire ants ants are hell on earth (laughs) like so, um, but yeah, as far as the sterile keeping and everything, the the reason why large lizard people don't do that is because <clears throat> lack of substrate means lack of humidity. And humidity is a huge key component when keeping large lizards. And lack of substrate means lack of mental simulation, which is another huge component when it comes to keeping large lizards. So sterile environments are a lot more difficult. And in the third case, if you have a female, lack of potential eggs. Of egg nesting. Yeah, and then you have egg binding issues and they're gone. Because in large lizards, when you're keeping your animals proper, um, even, I mean, and I mean proper in a good way and not perfect, because one of the leading causes of death in female lizards is egg binding. Um, And I mean, you can even have a perfect cage, a perfect setup, but if they don't find a nesting ground that they like, they're not going to lay their eggs. They'll get A-bound and they'll, they'll literally essentially kill themselves. Um, so, yeah. Yep. So, and you have those issues when keeping lizards. And that's why a lot of the sterile environment is kind of a no-no. So people, and don't get me wrong, I had my mangrove monitor actually just had, uh, he had a prolapse due to um, the fact that he's a young male and is showing off to the world a lot. And one of his hemipenes just kind of got stuck. So he actually had to get it surgically removed and I had to keep him in sterile conditions for a week. And to me, I'm like, I hate this. I know you need it, but I hate it because I was nonstop missing him worried about humidity issues. My fault. I should have gave him the birds and the bees lecture. Yeah, he needed that lecture. But uh, bioactive is a big thing when keeping the large lizards because then that way you don't have to clean as much poop and, you know, the leftover food and shed and any issues and anything like that, the bioactive is going to take care of. And a lot of people, like all of our snakes are on bioactive too. All of our animals are on bioactive. Yeah, so, I mean, we don't keep our snakes in complete sterile environments. Um, once they reach a certain age. Now I have the hatchling speckled king snakes. They're on paper towel. They're on a strict sterile environment just because of their age. And like if we got anything that was sick, obviously we'd have to go down to the sterile environments. So it's different styles of keeping. It's just unfortunately a lot of the large lizards, they straight up just the sterile doesn't work. But you can keep them on bioactive and still have a clean cage. So this is bioactive with like isopod springtails, the whole deal. Yeah. Yep. And now is that you still spot clean it? Um, we'll what we'll do is to reduce the rate of because the only thing with bioactive that you have to be aware of is you have to keep your dirt turned. You always have to keep moving your dirt because otherwise you'll get a layer of certain. I mean, certain things that'll stick around, um, not to scare anybody away from bioactive, but you do have a higher risk of coccidia kind of building up in the substrate 
um, because you're getting all those animals. I mean, the isopods and everything, like they poop. I mean, your animal's pooping. So, <laughs> and every animal has that positive balance of parasites in them. So you do run risk of, you know, certain things kind of popping up and sticking around in the soil. So that's why they always recommend if you do bioactive, you just keep turning your substrate. And um, that's pretty much all we do when it comes to cleaning cages. I mean, all of our cages are filled with isopods. So we don't worry about cleaning at all. Up north, I had an Argus cage that I didn't clean for six years. I had no problems in that cage at all. So, and I mean, we do, not only do we do Hope, but we do also Reptile Keeper LLC, where we sell all those isopods and springtails. So we kind of have like our own little personal collection of isopods that we can just toss in the cages anytime. Awesome. So did you have anything else? Um, no, she wants to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I asked a question on the chat a long time ago. And so oh, yeah. And that's a good thing in closing. Um, yeah. Someone on the chat was wondering if you guys have your own YouTube channel or you do any videos or anything. We told you. We stopped. I told you. I know. We, we don't. Um, it was something we were considering for a while, but because of how many YouTube channels there are, we kind of fell through on doing it but on our facebook page we do go live every so often um you know maybe something we could start doing is just basic like q a or something like that but as far as going into super deep and having a youtube channel based on that it's at least until we get the center up and going it's probably not anything that we would definitely do but we do go live on facebook every so often you can go to our facebook page there's oh. no, there's not enough good large lizard information like on YouTube. That's for sure. There and is people. Stop. I know. The thing is, is that it'd always be me talking. You wouldn't do it. I'd talk. Would you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe we would. There's a difference. I don't know. There's a difference. It's not that I don't want to talk. It's that I rarely get to talk. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. <laughs> that makes sense. All right. Well, that leads into my next question. If someone wanted to reach out to you, um, what's the best that, way they can reach you? Yeah, so... Yeah, babe, tell them. What? What's the best way to reach out to us? Thanks to you. Okay, so we have... we Whatever. We have a couple different things. So we have our Facebook page um, that's Hope Education, and it's facebook.com slash hope, H-O-P-E, education. And the E and education is all one word. So essentially it's like hop education. <clears throat> um, and then we have our website, which is www.reptilekeeperllc.com. And we also publicly post our phone number all over the internet. So I might as well do it here too. Um, we have the exotic keepers hotline, which is, you can call us or text us anytime. It's area code 716-940-0530. And you can literally just shoot us a text message, give us a call. If anybody has any questions, uh, whether it's husbandry, basic medical advice, or um, just in general, just wants to BS about reptiles, by all means, give us a call or shoot me a text message. Um, and I mean, that number is plastered all over the place. We also have an email address, which is reptile underscore keeper at outlook.com. So those are some of the ways that you can kind of reach out to us. Awesome. And what yeah. do we have to say for ourselves? Um, I, I can't think. I'm so tired. Um, 
if you want to reach out to us, Port City Pythons on Instagram, Port City Pythons on Facebook, Port City Pythons. We will publicly com. post our address for you to send us new headphones so that we don't need to share. Pythons anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Is it our average? Our, our Dallas address was posted, but thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't know, I, I try not ever. to post too much. There's phone numbers out Your there. Your phone number is posted. People yeah, text posted you. Yeah, posted all over. Thankfully, people don't abuse it. You forget that, you know, your phone's out there until so someone, someone texts randomly you. texts you, and it's always at, like, but, 1 in the morning. It's never, yeah, like, normal human time. But they don't, like, preface anything. A lot yeah, they're, they're like, hey, what's yeah, up? <laughs> they're never like, hey, I found your number on Instagram. It's Here's just, my course thing. What morph is it? Yeah. Oh, hey. It's like, hey, I don't know you, but cool. <laughs> part of I get, we get like medical stuff. Like someone will be like, help, my bearded dragon did this. And it's like, oh. That's but, so much scariest because you're like, I'm not exactly qualified to. Right. You know, you don't want to tell anyone something. So. No. Skip, exactly. Or, you know, prescribe yes. anything. No. And it puts you in that spot. But, and that's why like with us, when we do the hotline and everything, we always tell people we're like, listen, we're not licensed veterinarians. We just have experience. So if it gets to a point where we don't know what we're doing, we'll be like, listen, here's a vet, go to them. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's understanding your boundaries. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Poorcitypythons.com. <laughs> we did we're, that already. <laughs> we're messing up the outro. We, like we do this all the time. Um, there's t-shirts. There's the Oak Show. There is. That's that really is it. it, guys. And we will see you next week. Yes. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you guys Brittany for and Caleb. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> I can't think of anything else. Okay. <laughs> Later. Bye, guys. Bye.